name is Tom Chick. You are listening to the Quarter to Three Games Podcast, where we talk to the people who make the forum what it is, about the things that matter to them. Today, I am so pleased to finally be talking to this guy. Uh, this fellow's been around the forum forever. Uh, I... I I mean it when I say he's one of my favorite posters. Uh, I, I feel so privileged that we have had Dr. Crypt on quarter to three for so long. Uh, and he is here today under his real name. John, your real name is John Brown Lee. Uh, yes, uh, but there is no hyphen between those, uh, despite what uh, people sending email <laughs> say. So John Brown Lee is fine. Uh, do you think your name is as cool as I think it is? Well, no, but, um, you know, like, I don't think that you think your name is as cool as I think it is. Like, you know, you probably, you know, think it's somewhat feminine, whereas I think that it, you know, is like, I don't know, extraordinarily assertive. Like, you know, that chick at the end is, is uh, you know, like, I can see that being the sort of thing that people would torment you about when you were, like, six or seven. And then, like, once you were 22 or 23, you never realized that it was actually, like, extraordinarily cool. I, I'm more like resigned to it. Uh, I haven't quite reached that point, but I'll trade names with you if you want. I don't know, John Chick. I guess, <laughs> I, I guess, I guess it works for the same reasons. It's fine. It's you know pretty. It's the same. But like, I got to tell you, like you know, the 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 problem with Brownlee is is that like you're not going to think this is a big deal, but when you're when you're younger, uh, people will say to you like. All right, Brownlee. And, um, you know, like, okay, well, that, you know, like, as an adult, that doesn't sound like a big deal. But, like, when you're a kid, you immediately know, then and there, forever and ever, that they think that your last noun, last name sounds like dropping a, dropping a bowel movement. And you, you would go there, but no, I don't, I don't think that. I think of John Brownlee as sounding like, like an old blues legend who's, who's roaming the earth after he sold his soul to the devil with, you know, a slide guitar on his back, and he's, like, grizzled and has a beard. That's, that's what John Brownlee sounds like to me. Well, you know, there is a uh, – well, I have, I have a, a few namesakes, um, one of whom is uh, – I think he's, like, a, a Canadian politician immersed in some sex scandal, John Brownlee. <laughs> but uh, there's also a John Brownlee who – I, I don't know about I don't know enough about opera to actually tell you what he what party sang, but he was a, a a very famous Australian opera singer singer in the uh, 30s and 40s. And um, my uncle John Brownlee apparently uh, collected quite a bit of action back in those days <laughs> on. Um, on cruise ships and the like, you know, when people came up to me like, are you that John Brown? He's like, of course I am. Of course I am. And they're like, you know, uh, before the internet, no one knew who, you know, people looked like. So this fat, bald guy, you know, he was able to collect on these things. So it worked out for him. A friend of mine has the name uh, Troy Vincent, which doesn't mean anything to me, uh, but that's apparently the name of some sort of a quarterback for, I don't know, Pennsylvania or something like that, but he he goes through life with the name of a famous person. Uh, I don't know that he could cash in on it though, like your uncle. Uh. <laughs> well, I, I, I tried to cash in on this name of this long dead uh, opera singer, but unfortunately, like the octogenarians just aren't having me. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that's the kind of action that you are ready for, John. Uh, now, now, so let's talk about your other name. What's the deal? Dr. Crypt, what, what are you, like, 12? Oh, God, well, 
it's funny you should mention that. Um, I am 12. No, um, I, back in the day, um, like, Dr. Crypt is my nickname for basically the last 20 20 years of my um, internet existence. Like, uh, you know, back in the day, like, we had Prodigy, which I don't know if you remember this, but it was, you know, like a kind of 286-era, you know, dial-in modem service, um, all black and white. I think the original Neverwinter Nights came out on it, but um, I might be mistaken in that regard. Um, Anyway, we had that, and um, I was... Very, like, I was, you know, a 10-year-old snot-nosed kid, and I was very much into, um, I was very much into uh, posting on their fiction boards and their horror movie boards. Like, they had sort of uh, primordial forums there. And, you know, like, on one of these forums, uh, I'd just seen Evil Dead 2, and I had written this really long, like, in retrospect, like, extraordinarily long, like, I mean, for a 10-year-old, this is pretty impressive, like, 150-page serial about this 1940s private detective who fought Nazis and monsters, uh, you know, named Dr. Cripps, and, um, like, at the time, that seemed extraordinarily original to me, um, and, you know, I immediately... I kept that handle for for many, many years because I'd gotten some degree of recognition and fame at that point based upon it, you know, and um, I mean, I've been on the Internet, it feels like to me, forever, so a lot of these things where people, like, will switch their email addresses or switch their handles, like, mm-hmm. I've never done, mm-hmm. and so what ends up happening is, is that, like, even though I'm fairly young, like, I, ha- I feel like I have, like, 20 or 25 years worth of baggage in regards to the internet where like you know you know people who are you're still on the instant message list of people from 15 years ago so like for 15 years ago like i was dr crypt on you know aol instant messenger or whatever and so i don't want to change my instant messenger account uh just in case these people are still looking for me or still ping me or whatever and some of these people i still do have conversations with but um you know but at the same time, at this point in my life, I also have, like, a lot of business contacts who get in, get in touch with me and are like, you know, what's your, you know, what's your messenger account or what's your AOL account? And I'll, you know, like, be like, um, you know, John Crypt, uh, <laughs> no, J-O-H-N-C-R-Y-P-T, you know. <laughs> like, so it's a little embarrassing, but that's what it is. Now, uh, you are in a country, though, where not everyone's speaking English these days. Uh, how does Dr. Crypt translate into German? Uh, well, Jesus, I, I probably hear Dr. Crypt. <laughs> so what, what is the deal, by the way, John, with that? You, you're, you're obviously not Irish. You've been in Ireland forever. You're not German. What the heck are you doing over there? When are you coming home? Uh, well, it's, um, I'm actually coming home in about three or four months. Uh, I'm going to be moving back to the States for the first time in a decade. For real? Like to um, stay? Yeah, 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 to stay. To stay. Oh, why? Um, Wait a minute. Now I feel bad. What, what's wrong with uh, Germany? Uh, well, nothing, nothing's wrong with Germany. I mean, like, I've, I've noticed, like, an increasingly alarming nationalist pitch to, you know, the conversations around me and the politics, but... Uh, 
Uh, I, I'm kidding. I haven't. Uh, Actually, I was no, going to call you on that. I did not realize <laughs> that they were sliding back into national socialism. I'm glad to hear that's not the case. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, Germany's Germany's rad. Like, I, I really like Germany, and I really like Berlin. Um, you know, I left. I, I left America very young. Like, I left America around 20 or 21. Hmm. So, um, you know, I. You know, I've spent most of my adult life in, in uh, abroad, and um, you know, like, and I have enjoyed it. Like, but it's one of those things where it, it's strange timing because as, the further I've the further I've been away from America, the more I have missed, and I guess the older I've gotten, the more I've missed the convenience that is easy to uh, just sort of ignore or to look over when you're in America. And I've also, um, you know, I also have, but I also have, like, friends and uh, family in America. Like, my, my parents, I'm an only child. My parents specifically are getting older, and there's going to be a time at some point where, you know, I'm going to have to look after them. And, you know, um, I, I, I can't ignore that. Um, so are you, are you moving back to Boston then? Is that where you're coming? Uh, no, no, I'm going to be moving to New York, um, which is, uh, my girlfriend, uh, is, uh, from, well, she's not from New York, but she has spent a lot of her adult life in New York, and she has a, a big love affair for it. Um, she sort of imparted some of that towards me, whereas, like, previously I just sort of despised it. <laughs> and, um, you know, we've, we've been there together, and, um, you know, like I've, I've started to see a lot of the charm, whereas before I just kind of s- sort of saw this, this, like, very kind of just this throbbing biomass around me. Um, <laughs> but, like, it, it's sort of like she's kind of helped me find my way through sort of the folds there, and that's that's sort of nice. Um, so no, wait, I want to call you on little... something real quick. Hold on one second. Are you moving back to the States? Are you moving to New York because of a girl? Yeah, well, partially, yeah. Like, you know, I mean, um, you know, like, uh, I mean, um, my girlfriend lives with me here in Germany and has for the couple of years. But, uh, you know, like, we're both kind of ready for a change. And she suggested New York, and she really likes New York. And I kind of felt, well, you know, like, we met in Berlin. This is the city that we started out in. This is kind of the city I wanted to stay for. So, you know, like... I think I can give her a year in New York City, like, you know, that's, or, you know, two or whatever. Like, it, it's it's fine. Like, I mean, the thing is, is, like, I've moved a lot of places, and it, it's not really a big deal to go to a place for, you know, a year or two and um, see where, you know, see how, th- you know, see how things turn out. So, like, I'm kind of excited about it. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, like, the, that's, you know, like, I mean, you know, like, there's other considerations, like, career-wise, it's a much better place for me to be, um, and it's very close to my parents, like, I'm sure you've done the Chinatown bus ride yourself, so, you know, that's very, you know, it's like four hours away from my parents without actually having to deal with their, you know, casual insanity, so. <laughs> now, uh, so, so you, your time, is there a definite date where you're moving, or is this something you guys are just considering in the near future? 
No, it looks like we're going to be moving um, early to mid-January, so very close. Ah, okay. Now, for your remaining days in Germany, I don't know if this is any assistance to you, but I wanted to offer you some advice while you're in Germany. Okay. This might be helpful. Uh, Dummkopf means sir. Schnell means please. So roll, <laughs> roll those out if, if you like, if those are helpful to you. Uh, b- before we talk about other things, I, I, I'm really curious, though, John, how, why is it that a 20-year-old runs off and lives in Ireland for so long, and what was behind the transition from Ireland to Germany? Give me the little thumbnail sketch of why John Brownlee has been kicking around abroad for a decade. Well, you know, I, I think that your, your first guess might be politics. Like, that seems to be uh, most people's guess that, like, especially since, like, I left, basically I left very early in George Bush's term. Um, it actually had nothing to do with that. Um, in fact, I'm, like, a, politically uh, not because I am uh, conservative, actually, far from it, um, but I'm politically a little bit more alarmed to be moving back now than I was, had a reason to move 10 years ago. Um, uh, you know, just because I, I don't know, I, I, I just, I, I feel nowadays that the environment politically is, uh, I don't know, it's, sides are alarmingly against each other in a way that it didn't feel that way to me a decade ago. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that makes me a little bit nervous and a, a sort of, I don't like being in no compromise environments. Um, but that's not the point. The, the point was is that 10 years ago, I just had, uh, I'd romanticized through my teen years uh, moving abroad. Um, I had, you know, written, I, I'd not written, I'd read all of the appropriate books like On the Road and, you know, <laughs> what have you, and, uh, you know, like really absorbed the romanticism. So I traveled early. Like um, once I graduated from high school, I immediately uh, took a job, saved every penny I had, and like went backpacking. And, um, you know, and then I did it again and again, and um, I found out somewhere along those, uh, one of those trips uh, that I was eligible for European citizenship through my grandfather, who was uh, Irish, and so I applied for that, and I got that, um, which was remarkably easy, and once I had that, I was just like, well, you know, I want to go, I don't really want to stay in Boston, I don't know where I want to go, so I'm just going to move to, I'm going to move to Ireland, which is exactly what I did, and I got a job there, and, uh, you know, um, did that for a while, and, you know, and then about, but I wasn't really happy in Dublin, Um, you know, Dublin has, Dublin's on a very small, in a very small country and on a very small island, and so it's, to everybody who is local to Ireland, Dublin feels extraordinarily big, but it's actually um, an extraordinarily exciting. But, like, in actuality, if you're from, like, any big American city, uh, Dublin is going to feel very provincial to you, or at least that's the way I found it. So um, after a few years kicking around there, I kind of realized that I was not happy there, and I certainly did not want to stay there. And, in fact, I felt stuck there. And so, generally speaking, when I feel stuck somewhere, I, I tend to um, try to do something to move forward. And so, mm-hmm. in Dublin, I ended up uh, kind of just deciding, like, I had gone to Berlin in 1998 for the first time, and I had fallen 
head over heels in love with it. Like, um, it was kind of like my dream city in the sense that, like, it's, uh, you know, like as a 18-year-old kid who was rife with insecurities and, uh, you know, it just seemed impossibly cool. Like, you know, you've got all of these, like, you know, bomb, you know, incredibly cool ancient bombed out buildings that are like artist colonies and you're just meeting like exquisitely weird and, you know, poor people who are, you know, having a living, making a living as artists, but are not, um, you know, but like don't actually seem to be having any real hardship with it. They're still kind of like breathing through life and, um, you know, and I had just sort of fallen in love with, this city, and so I ended up deciding that I was going to move, uh, going to move over here, and kind of like it had always seemed like this impossible dream of like living in this this city, and I and I finally came over here, and uh, you know, and and did live here for uh, I think I'm over three years now, so um, you know, I, I I did finally end up realizing this this dream. Now, did of, did actually. Did moving there turn out to be uh, more prosaic than you imagined, or uh, was this this concept of the artist colonies and the bombed out buildings? What was that part of the experience of living in Berlin for you? Um. Y- yes and no. Like the thing is, is like um, the thing about Berlin that I have found is that like especially if you're dealing uh, kind of maneuvering in the ex- expat community, what you're dealing with more often than not is, you know, sort of starstruck people exactly like me uh, who are, you know, completely entranced with the romanticism of the city and specifically the way that you can be a naive artist in this city and, you know, like uh, abstain from responsibility. And, you know, like that's extraordinarily uh, intoxicating at first. But what you ultimately realize is that, like, the vast majority of your friends are living in a perpetual state of arrested development, and um, which is fine, but if you're not, and if you're starting to get older and, you know, thinking about things like career and responsibility and stuff like that, then, you know, like, you know, all of your friends being in their mid-30s and, you know, playing accordion for a living on a street corner and, you know, like, not being able to afford heat in the winter. Like, it it stopped having this air of romanticism to it, and it just sort of, like, has this, you know, um, or it just has this despair of just being completely pathetic, you know? Like, um, I guess this is just very much about getting older where people, um, people around you are like, you know, I'm living the dream, and you're like, well, yeah, but this dream sucks, you know? (laughs) You know, John, uh, it strikes me that your description of Berlin sounds a lot like Los Angeles, <laughs> as far as like uh, that perpetual state of arrested development. Uh, so, uh, I think. The, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh no, no, I, I, I don't think I necessarily have anything to add to that. Like, I think that sounds very astute to me. Um, and in fact, a lot of the people that I know who are who are like this are originally from uh, Los Angeles, California <laughs> area. <laughs> That that might be, by the way, that might be one of California's exports is uh, is arrested. <laughs> uh, so so you mentioned uh, uh, dudes in their mid thirties playing accordion on a street corner. Uh, that reminds me, in a way, of uh, 
now, now you say that and you talk about like this sense of avoiding responsibility. Isn't your career, and let's talk a little bit about this, and I don't know that it's fair to call this your career. Uh, I certainly feel a little trapped by it. It's kind of my career currently. Uh, how do you feel about this idea of, of blogging as a job, as a career? Like, uh, I, I don't feel like I'm that far from the guy playing accordion on the street corner who can barely afford to pay the heating bill based on what I do for my job, which is to write a blog. Uh, and isn't that a lot of what you also do for your, your day job, as it were? Yeah, um, well, I mean, yeah, I, I, that, that's definitely true. Um, in fact, I have, uh, for the last four or five years, I have exclusively paid all of my bills through uh, blogging and writing work, um, which actually I have a lot to thank Quarter to Three for um, in that it originally opened that up to me. Um, I, I feel, you know, I, I think that I would be interested in hearing more about what you, what you found to be the, 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 the trappings of it. Um, mm-hmm. Like, I can say that I feel... At the one on one hand, extraordinarily grateful because um, I had you know before I started blogging, I had zero creative outlet. I had um, well, I didn't have zero creative outlet. I had creative outlets, but it wasn't getting out to other people. It was just me hammering away. Um, you know, before that, I was doing uh, very strange sort of office jobs. You know, that ultimately were sort of soul-killing to me, and now I have a job where, you know, I can drink five beers by noon and work all day in my underpants. Um, you know, like, um, I, I make a very good living doing what I do, um, which is great. Um, but at the same time, the nature of blogging is one in which you cannot afford to wait for inspiration to strike for the perfect turn of phrase for that thought or opinion to gel. Um, it, the nature of blogging is also one in which, um, also one in which, like, your readers don't care if that day you're feeling sick or your girlfriend broke up with you the night before or your mother died or any other number of things, like, you are a producer of content, and Mm -hmm. that is your job, and that is your role, and if you do not produce, you're, you know, like, there aren't, you know, if you don't, you know, there aren't any vacations, Mm -hmm. Um, there aren't any excuses, really, like, and so, you know, it's a balancing act, like, on one hand, I'm extraordinarily grateful and thrilled and, uh, very proud of what I do, and on the other hand, I'm, you know, exhausted by it, and there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of elements to uh, blogging, especially blogging regularly and professionally, that, you know, some, you know, like a lot of times you're doing work that you're not necessarily proud of, and, uh, or not as proud of as you could be, Mm -hmm. and these are things you have to, you have to balance, and there's no one to blame, there's no editor above you to blame, where you're like, oh, that review where that story didn't turn out exactly the way I wanted, so I'll blame them. Like, no, it's all you. You're putting things live. Mm-hmm. Now, tell before uh, I'll talk a bit about sort of from my perspective. Before we do that, tell me now, for whom are you generally writing? Where, where do where do we find John Brown Lee blog posts these days? Um, these days, I do. I, I write. I, I, I don't write about games very much anymore. 
Um, as far as a professional blogger, I write a lot about uh, Mac and OSX stuff for a site called Cult of Mac. And then I write about general technology stuff and occasionally games, very occasionally for a site called Geek. And, um, you know, it's, so that's where I, that's where I am now. Uh, previously, I have been, uh, before that, my last, I, I worked for, uh, Boing Boing. Uh, I worked for, uh, a, uh, AMC. Um, and before that, I also, I worked for, uh, Wired, and before that I worked for Kotaku, and uh, unbelievably where I got my start is a site called Consumerist, which is about consumer affairs. Now, do you actually, the stuff you're blogging about these days, like Mac stuff and tech stuff, is that stuff that's already interesting to you that you already care about, or do you care about it because you're blogging about it? Uh, well, you know, um, let's see, Mac stuff I'm very definitely interested because in, I use a Mac. Uh, technology stuff I'm, I'm very interested in, but... Okay. Um, you know, like, I think that uh, there have been certain things that I have become more interested in through writing about it, you know, like, um, you know, like, that's definitely something that, com- that, that comes down to it, you know, um, you do become, you know, like, you do become more, in, you know, like, I don't think that necessarily being an expert is a requisite to, uh, I don't think being an expert is necessarily a requisite to to starting to, to have opinions and stating right. those opinions about it. Right. Now, uh, you uh, you mentioned before that when you were a kid, you wrote, like, this 150-page fiction opus. Like, you, you obviously have a background in creative writing. Uh, is that something you still do? And the reason I ask, it's a, it's a loaded question, uh, because one of my concerns with the type of writing I'm doing now is that it kind of shuts out the kind of writing I would like to do. You know, you mentioned as a kid writing this 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 horror fiction. Uh, I used to write short fiction about about video gaming. I used to write columns, uh, and I I missed that. Like that stuff was enormously creatively gratifying to me, and I don't really do that anymore because I'm having to come up with you know four or five short supposedly funny things every day, which I hate doing uh, because that's what I'm doing instead of the stuff I would have preferred to do. Uh, and, and is that the case with you? Um, yes and no. Um, like, I, I definitely understand the, the feeling that you are having there. Um, you know, because, like, one of the things when you are, like, when every single day your job is to write X amount of content in words or posts or pages or whatever, um, when that is your job, like, by the end, you know, by the end of the day, you are just like, I don't want to put in another 500 words towards my dream. Like, I'm just, I'm just exhausted. Like, this is what I've been doing all day. <laughs> you know, like, I've been, you know, kind of pouring words out and, um, you know, I've been pouring words out, and, you know, like, sometimes, like, and, and also, like, it depends upon your audience. Like, sometimes pouring those words out is extremely encouraging, and, and it makes you want to write more. But, like, at the same time, like, I'm sure you know from Fidget, like, you just get the, those assholes and dickheads who are, you know, like, you know, um, just coming in, and, you know, like, their whole goal is to essentially, I mean, it's not their goal. Like, they're, they're you're not reaching them for some reason. Like, and that's cool, like, but... You know, like, that's the thing, like, you know, you do end up having to, 
deal with, A, both a lot of anonymous encouragement, which is, which is great and amazing, but you also have to do with, deal with a lot of anonymous discouragement. Right. And that can kill a creative impulse. It's, you know, the, both can create, uh, kill a creative impulse, because when you're getting, dealing with a lot of anonymous encouragement, you're also kind of like, should I trust this? Like, who is this guy, <laughs> you know, typing in, like, LOL, you know, like, well said, you know, see you later, you know, like, you know, like, who, who is this guy? Like, you know, like, do I give a fuck that he likes me, or is, is, is the fact that he likes me worse than this guy calling me an asshole, you know, like... <laughs> Um, you know, so that's something you have to deal with, but it's, it's, it's mostly just a volume thing. Like, um, you know, and I, I think that ultimately though, what I have felt like is, is that like writing a vast volume of stuff every day is better for me creatively than, you know, than not doing so. Like, um, well, it certainly forces you to sort of work that muscle, as it were. Like, I, I find that if I don't write for a long time, it's more difficult. But boy, when your job is to to create some sort of content every day, that you get that muscle in shape. I mean, it's much easier to sit down with a with a blank page and get something there uh, when when you're a blogger. I think. Well, well, I, I, I think so too, and I think that also it's uh, blogging. Um, I mean, I, you know, I don't want to go into the actual, you know, pay details of blogging or whatever, and like what agreements are. But like, when you're being paid based upon a certain amount of content, like it makes you really think about the amount of time that goes into to content, like right? How much your time is worth, like, you know, like. You know, if you do, you know, like, because, I mean, I, I, I've spent that time where I've, like, I've just been writing, I mean, I've spent that time where I'll, like, write an email, or back in the day, I'd write a quarter to three post where I would, like, spend, like, 45 minutes, like, just looking at a sentence, like, there's something <laughs> I can tweak here that makes it, like, I, I intuitively know I can tweak it by 1% to make it 1% more devastating to somebody. And then, you know, and then you do it, and, like, you know, you've just, like, thrown 45 minutes <laughs> down the train to, like, burn burn somebody 1% uh, 1% more who's just going to walk away from it and, and just, you know, go to his wife and be like, isn't my life great? You know, like... <laughs> <laughs> it definitely does force you to look at the calculus of how much time you spend writing, yeah, and and the the effort that goes into it versus the payoff, yeah. Well, now here, here's yeah, the here's go ahead, John. Sorry. Oh no, I was going to say that like as far as like blogging is concerned, um, you know, uh, producing a vast amount of content every day, like one thing that is a benefit to it creatively is that like. Um, well, one, one, time, one, one thing is you value your creative time a lot more. Like, um, the time that you can actually put into something creative that is for yourself, uh, that time, like, you really do value that. I don't know if you find that to be the case, Tom, but, like, I mean, you know, uh, like, for example, um, when you did that fidget, fidget uh, about Dead Rising 2, which we're going to talk about in a few minutes, people, like when you did that um, sort of fan fiction dialogue, which was mm -hmm. absolutely hysterical and brilliant, but like, like it, it's very clear that that's not something that you did to necessarily pay the bills or whatever. That's like a labor of love, and it really shows. Like that's something that um, is clearly like, you having done something creative and valued your time for it. And it's great that, it, you know, it ends up being applicable, but I, you know, like that's, um, you know, that, that was a labor of love for you. And it was something where obviously you would, you know, it, it, you know, it's, it's, it's shoot club caliber 
um, I thought. And, um, you know, so I think that, like, blogging in that sense, like, does make you really value your creative time and realize that there's not actually a lot of time to waste. Like, you can waste your whole life doing, you can waste your whole life, like, waiting for that sen- that perfect sentence to start your great American novel or whatever, but, like, once you're actually writing a lot of stuff for other people, like, it's just like, well, actually, maybe I should just start writing, <laughs> you know, like... Well, I'm I'm glad you mentioned that that Dead Rising piece because that I, I consider myself incredibly fortunate with Fidget, in that those guys, I mean the guys I work for, the Sci-Fi Channel, I you know bless their hearts, they let me pretty much do whatever I want to do, and I don't feel a lot of the pressure that I think a lot of people working in this format do feel, and that is namely uh, the format of blogging, like the the, the format in which people who write for Kotaku or or any big blog, and I imagine you have to deal with this, John, the medium in a way is more important than than actually what you're writing. And the medium dictates how you write. It's all about getting attention. It's all about getting someone to click on your article. Uh, And I hate the fact that that drives what you write, how you write, what you write about. Um, and I feel incredibly lucky to not be, to not have to worry about that so much. That I can do something like that goofy little dialogue for Dead Rising 2, and that I can post that, and in a way not worry about if it's going to get hits. Uh, you know, the, the, the place I feel that most is, is I have to write headlines that get people to click on articles. And I feel so incredibly disingenuous most of the time because you have to sell it in the headline. You know, that's, that's an element of marketing. Uh, and I, I hate that aspect. I hate what blogging as a format does to how you write. Uh, and I just feel that I'm, I'm fairly lucky to not have to worry about that so much. Uh, is that something that bothers you? Um, not, not, not personally, actually. Um, it's, um, I mean, that, I, I, that's not the way I view blogging. And, you know, like, I've worked for some of the big, like, the bigger names in professional blogging. And, like, that's not the, uh, that's, but, I, but I've always been in cool situations, which is, like, the, uh, which is the exception. Like, um, like uh, I think that basically, like, the way I view a blogger's role, like, I mean, I see this this argument all the time on quarter to three where, like, um, people say, like, very disparaging things about Kotaku, um, for example, and, like, oh, they're just being exploitive, you know, they're just doing this, that, or the other, you know, how is this news, the death of game journalism, 2012, (laughs) you know, like, whatever, like, and, um, you know, like, um, I'm not actually defending Kotaku or anybody really here, but, like, um, I, I feel that a lot of people who are used to uh, game journalism, say, ten years ago or even five years ago, are kind of missing the point of blogging, which is that, like, in, in actuality, I think that the, the role of a blogger is that of um, a living, breathing content filter on this, like, you know, um, constantly spurting spout of information that no single person could possibly get a grip on, you know, <laughs> and, um, like, the role, you know, like, as a blogger, your role is to be as opinionated uh, and as opinionated as possible to be as much of a personality as possible, and the reason this is is because you are a filter for that information about a subject that somebody is interested about but does not have the time to read 
whatever, like 20,000 posts a day about. Like, you were, the, you know, you were that, you, your role is to provide dynamic commentary, entertainment, and opinion as shit happens through the day, like, as soon as it happens through the day. And, like, to basically direct people's attention based upon the fact that they trust you, like, like by the way that you write, by the way, by the opinions you express, by uh, the thoughts that you have in a very high-pressure environment, they know that, like, that, you know, you are simpatico with them, that, that you are a person or this site is, a, is an entity which they can trust to basically, like, leave out some of the homework for themselves about something that is, you know, that they are passionate about. And um, so I don't actually see blogging as um, something that needs to have, like, exploitive headlines or needs to be, you know, page view oriented in regards to, like, you know, phrasing something exactly, um, exactly in this one exploitive way that gets a lot of people to click that once. Like, I actually think that it's, you know, a long tail scenario where, you are aiming for people to trust your viewpoint less than trust your viewpoint just trust like the way you break things down for them trust the uh you know trust your humor and your commentary and the way you make it fun for them more than you know more than just that like very short-sighted view on getting a bunch of people to click on the headline you know that's that's very nice john you have just made me feel uh probably about uh 30% better about what I do for a living. Thank you. <laughs> uh, now, let's uh, let's stop talking about our jobs, I, stupid blogging stuff. Uh, I'm going to just force a segue here. Uh, let me ask you, John. You smoke a pipe? What? <laughs> well, up until, uh, up until fairly recently, I, I still smoke a pipe. That's, that's not oh, true. Whoa, 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 whoa. Are you trying to delude yourself into thinking that you've quit smoking? What's going on? Um, I haven't quit smoking. Um, the thing is, is like, so my girlfriend moved into with me very recently, and like we spent all of our time together. But like, before she moved in, um, and she was very comfortable with me smoking a pipe, and that was fine. The thing is, when she moved in, like you know, it, it's my apartment, and so it, it's my apartment. It's an apartment I picked out when I was a bachelor. So you know, there's no there's no actual office. There's just like. In the bedroom, there is a desk where we where I work, and so she has uh, she has work to do too. So I was just like, oh well, this is fine. Like this is a big desk. I'll just move the desk across from the wall, and I'll put up. You know, you can put your computer on one side. I'll put my computer on the other side. It's fine. Um, in practice, though, this involves me blowing plume after plume <laughs> of extremely nicotine heavy smoke into her face. And I chain smoke like a motherfucker when I'm writing, and I write for like seven hours a day. So it's me just basically blowing all of this smoke into her face. And she started having like these like, like sort of panic attacks that requ required her to like curl up into like a fetal position to recover from. And, you know, like, and, and you know, and I, I just like, you know, this was not, you know, this is not conducive to my long-term happiness. Like, I, yeah, you know, and, and, you know, and as much as I think that pipe smoking has made me a totally awesome person, pipe smoking hasn't been great for, say, my teeth, my lungs, my parakeet's health, you know, like a lot of other things. So I was just like, 
you know, eventually I'm going to have to, you know, so it's like I'll have to cut down a bit. So now I do not smoke, say, what I did, which was like 16 pipes a day. Like it's now like like two in front of a window in my rocking chair. You know, it's it's much more manageable. But But for some reason I feel like the fact it has been cut down so extraordinarily, it's like, I, I don't know. I, I just feel like I'm less of a pipe smoker somehow. What did you replace that habit with? Like, I, I know what it's like to cultivate these habits that help you write. Uh, if you're down from 16 bowls to two a day, what are you doing during the time you would have been smoking those 14 pipes? I wish I could tell you anything here, but, like, it's, it's, it's basically drinking Diet Coke. <laughs> 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 that's that, that that's my thing like i mean um i mean pipe smoking is not addictive in the same way that, it, that cigarette smoking is like it's now you it's say that john but come on there's a lot of nicotine i mean i've smoked pipes cigars cigarettes i've even tried chew before i love to i love nicotine i mean i don't i don't partake of it now but but i i appreciate that all four of those are very very addictive in a, in a way do you do you really feel that, that pipe smoking isn't as addictive as, as cigarettes uh, well, I absolutely do. Um, yeah, I absolutely feel that way. You don't. You don't um, find yourself like craving that the nicotine you get from from a pipe. I, I do, but like I've seen cigarette smokers, and either I have like an infinitely better will than the people who smoked the amount of, uh, of tobacco I smoked. I mean, you know, or there's something different. And and I'll tell you what is different about pipe tobacco. Like. Um, you know, like you're you're chalking up all of this to nicotine addiction, but in actuality, like cigarettes are so loaded with other chemicals and additives, whereas uh, pipe tobacco is not. Pipe right. tobacco is basically pure, like um, right. especially the stuff that I smoke is is, is pure. Um, and also, like the bottom line is, I'm not channeling it directly into my lungs. Like pipe smokers don't do that. Like, or some do, but most don't. Like, it's a it's a puffing scenario, like a cigar. Right, right. But you still though get a lot of like the membranes in your mouth are very thin. You absorb a lot of nicotine. Uh, I, I actually don't know the science of it, John. Do you know like the the nicotine amount you get through a cigar or a pipe because it's unfiltered versus a cigarette? Oh, Christ, no, I don't. I'm, okay. I'm sorry, I don't. Um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, the thing is, is, like, once you're in the smoking community, like, another thing you need to keep in mind, especially in a like, fetishistic niche pipe, uh, smoking community like pipe smoking, which infinitely is, like, you know, um, it, it, it's a really weird kind of, um, like, a lot of the pipe smokers you meet are, like, really incredibly kind and nice people, but, like, it's also clear that they, like, feel disenfranchised by the mainstream smoking community, like, smoking their cools, like, looking cool in movies, you know, like, it, it's so weird, like, so these, um, you know, it, it's just, like, this strand, you know, random collection of, like, wizardly beardos, you know, <laughs> like, I, um, they're all into, like, old banjo bands and stuff, so, um, like, yeah, like, there's, um, there's, you know, there's, these guys will, like, pass you on information, you're like, you know, it sounds true, but then, like, you kind of, 
absorb a lot of propaganda. I mean, um, like, for example, you know, I was reciting this for years until I realized it was a start one day that I could not remember where I had heard it and, <laughs> and could not track it down afterwards, which was that, like, you know, according to, like, something like the 1972, like, Surgeon General's report on smoking, those who smoked pipes moderately uh, actually lived two years longer than <laughs> non-smokers. Um, and it was all chalked up. And, and, like, the moderate, like, moderate pipe smoking was, like, chalked up at something like eight pipes a day, which is insane. Like, like um, if you were a pipe smoker, like, a bowl of pipe tobacco, that lasts you, like, 45 minutes. Like, that's, you know, if, you, if you're doing it right, that lasts you 45 minutes. So, like, somebody's saying, like, eight pipes a day, like, they're talking about somebody who, like, has, you know, consecutively spent <laughs> hours a day, and that's moderate, you know, and, like, um, but these people, these moderate smokers are supposed to live, like, two years on average because, you know, pipe smoking relieves stress or whatever, which, you know, at the time I was like, well, of course it does, but now I'm just like, God, what, what weird magical thinking. Well, I will say, John, anybody, anything that you're told by a fellow who's smoking a pipe sounds probably far more trustworthy because the fellow's smoking a pipe. I mean, I think there's something that goes there. You, you get some inherent credibility. Now, I say that, John, but... It has to be from someone of a certain age. Like you, I'm guessing, would uh, to, to an outside observer, an impartial observer, you smoking a pipe would look, and I hope you don't take any offense at this, would look a little pretentious and artsy. Uh, you, uh, I, I think you have to, in order to get that trustworthiness from smoking a pipe, you have to be a certain age. And uh, I'm happy to tell you that I am probably about five years away from being able to smoke a pipe without looking ridiculous. So well, maybe less if you grew a beard. I mean, I'm just putting it out there. Like, you know what? Though I can't. I hate this, John. I can't grow a beard. I have this. I, you know, my my people are from the Ozarks, and I get this scraggly, like salt and pepper facial hair. It just looks horrible. I I can't grow a beard. So I've got to wait until I hit about 50, and then I can smoke a pipe, and, and I can look credible, and I can say things to people like you, like, hey, if you smoke a pipe, you live two years longer, and they will believe me. So. Well, you, you know, it, it's um, it, I, I did want to comment on this. Like you mentioned, this whole like, uh, it looks incredibly pretentious uh-huh. uh, to smoke a pipe at right. a certain age. Well, this is basically why I got into it. Um, okay, you know what, John, John? Hold on one second. I have to go sign for a package. While I am gone, tell the folks what you're about to say, and I will be right back. So I'm turning the show over to you. I'll be right back. Take it away, All John right. Brownlee. <laughs> so. Um, Basically, there's this, you know, you were supposed to, uh, he was saying that you smoke a pipe to, um, you know, smoke a pipe at a certain age, you look pretentious. Well, that's kind of why I got into it. The reason I got into smoking a pipe was to meet girls, which is like one of these classic, um, these classic maneuvers when you're like 18 or 19, you know, where you're, you you think that the most ridiculous thing, like eating your own boogers, is going to make girls like you, and you know, of course it doesn't. Um, so I, assume, like, in, in my period, I assumed that smoking a pipe, an extraordinarily obvious phallic symbol, was going to net me girls, and so I started smoking a pipe, and like, and, you know, it, 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 to be fair, it did get me a lot of attention, granted by a lot of women who had no intention of sleeping with me, but it, it did get me some attention. Like, um, But, like, the weird thing about pipe smoking, especially when you do it as early as I did, which is, like, 20 or so, is, like, at first, 
the thing you love most about it is that every time you light a pipe, people are like, oh, you're so interesting, you smoke a pipe. But, like, as the years go by and as you actually like to smoke a pipe and, you know, value that experience, appreciate it for its own merits, every time somebody asks, it says to you, oh, aren't you interesting, you smoke a pipe, you're just like, oh, for fuck's sake, like, can't we just smoke my pipe in peace? Like, why do I have, you know, like, like, I'm sick of people thinking I'm precious for doing this. Like, God damn it, I love it. Like, and everybody's making, like, you know, it's a mannerism, which, of course, it was. But, like, that's the thing. Like, a lot of honest mannerisms come from, you know, pretentious, useful leanings. Speaking of uh, pretentious leanings, what's your parakeet's name? Uh, oh, uh, his name is Humbert J. Humbird. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's a little too ridiculous to be pretentious. Okay. <laughs> uh, so, real quick, tell me about your first pipe. Do you still own the actual physical pipe? Do you still own it? Yeah, I do, actually. Um, it was a what's called a second, um, which is basically it means that most pipes are fairly expensive, um, but, I mean, most good pipes are fairly expensive. The second is, like, uh, a pipe that is made by a reputable maker, but for some cosmetic flaw, like, the sh- like basically the pattern of the briar, once it's carved or whatever, they decide they can't sell it for full price, so mm-hmm. they basically off- offload it for 10 or 15 bucks. Um, I mean, you know, I-, I do have it. I I, like, I can't smoke it anymore for... Whatever reason, the stem came loose from the bowl, which means that ah. the plastic part, uh, the plastic part for whatever reason doesn't fit. So every time I try to smoke anything from it, the bowl immediately falls out and rattles on the floor and lights fire to things and, you know, like splatters my foot with ashes. So, but I, I do still have it. Um, you know, it's not a extraordinarily interesting story, but, uh, like I, I wouldn't throw it away. Uh, I just, I hate to do this, but you just made me think of a brief anecdote. Uh, during my pipe smoking years, uh, I had moved from Boston back to, to Little Rock, Arkansas, where I'm from, uh, and I was doing a community theater production of Hound of the Baskervilles, which uh, my, my pipe smoking served me very well. I got to smoke a pipe on stage at the Little Rock Community Theater production of Hound of the Baskervilles. And at one night, I remember I'm smoking my pipe, uh, and the the bowl fell off of the stem, uh, you know, during a production, during a show, and the pipe, you, you know, it fell, and it rolled around, and, you know, ashes and stuff went everywhere, and I could see the little burning embers on the stage, uh, and I, I'm frantically trying to pick it up and, you know, put it back together and make sure the embers don't catch the carpet on fire, and, uh, and you know, this is during a production, and I just remember improvising the stupidest line, because, you know, what what can you do at that point? And just saying something stupid like, Oh, dear, Wilson, I've lost my pipe. Uh, <laughs> and, just, and then afterwards thinking, would Sherlock Holmes really have said that? Like, how would Sherlock Holmes really have reacted when he was right? So uh, the, that was from my pipe smoking. I love the idea that Sherlock Holmes would have reacted with, like, complete tremulous spasticity, like, oh, my God. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, the same thing has happened. Fuck. <laughs> uh, wow. All right, so I want to – so let's transition real quick to another thing. Uh, so much for this pretentious stuff. Let's get into geek stuff here. Uh, you are a fan, I presume, because you were called Dr. Crip way back when. You're, like me, a huge zombie fan, Yes. Uh, well, 
Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm definitely a huge zombie fan. Where did this come from? Okay, well, uh, basically, um, so I was born in 1979. Um, my father is um, a just sort of a career horror movie buff. Um, he's uh-huh. an incredibly uh, incredibly smart, discerning man, like infinitely smarter and more discerning than me. Um, but he loves horror film. And um, he, at a very early age, uh, basically started sh- bringing me to horror movies. Um, this was the early 80s. So when um, I'd actually need to make this clear. When I'm saying a very early age, he, we're talking... 82, 83. Like, so I'm three or four. Um, <laughs> my father started taking me to, um, like, horror movies. Like, there was a resurgence in Boston at the time. Like, at things like, I'm sure you know, the, like, the Coolidge Corner Theater. Um, you know, uh, this, is, this is what I remember, but, like, it actually may have been other theaters that were smaller and now forgotten. Like, I, I was too, this is what he kind of tells me now, but, like, mm-hmm. Basically, he would take me to, there was, you know, Dawn of the Dead hadn't just come out, but um, the Italian horror movies that had, uh, the Italian zombie movies that had been inspired by Dawn of the Dead were finally coming to the States in around 82 or 83. Um, so things like, you know, Zombie 2 and, you know, various faulty films and City of the Living Dead and things like this. So he started kind of wanting to go to these midnight <laughs> zombie movies and being stuck with this, uh, you know, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, angelic three-year-old and just deciding, like, what the hell, I'll take him with me. Like, I, I, my father, I guess, was an alcoholic at the time. <laughs> like, so I'm sure that played in somehow. So we started going to these things. Um, and basically, like, growing up, I saw a lot of horror movies as, you know, uh, like, at a very young age. Like, I remember seeing The Howling. Like, I remember seeing, like, Evil Dead 2 in the theaters. And I remember seeing... Um, I remember seeing Day of the Dead in the theaters, um, and, like, I remember this because I was, like, holding my hands over my eyes during, like, some of the gory parts, and uh, my dad's friend was, like, nudging me, and he was kind of an asshole, and he's just like, hey, nice no-D glasses, John. <laughs> and, like, up until, like, I was, like, 21, I was completely ashamed of the fact that I'd held my hands in front of my my face for this movie, and, like, then, I, like, later on, I was just like, what an asshole. <laughs> You're a little kid, too. Little kids should be allowed yeah. to do that. <laughs> exactly, but, um, so I saw a lot of these things, and um, I grew up really loving zombie movies, um, having seen a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, my inclinations sort of lead to, um, I guess, cheesier zombie films is, is a better way to describe it. Like, um, I, I, you know, like I can forgive the failings of zombie films that miss the point more if they're from a time where people, you know, where you know, film student, students weren't writing theses about them, you know, like, whereas now it's a lot harder for me to ignore um, things that are wrong with zombie movies. But, I mean, that said, like, um, obviously the formula has pretty much been perfected at this point. Well, I think, yeah, it's been perfected, and it's also at the point, because it's been perfected, where it's starting to be sort of tweaked and subverted. I mean, I think there's some fascinating stuff going on 
with just, just zombie mythologies, just the whole genre. Uh, and I want to talk about some of these, but first I want to just get your basic idea for what the heck is the deal with zombies? Why is this even a big deal? Hmm. Um, well, I'm going to be, I haven't thought about this, so I'm going to okay. be talking out of my ass for a little bit. All um, right. I guess what I would say, I mean, for me, like, I guess I would, I would try to boil it down to the essences of, of a zombie film, like, uh, or what I think of as a good zombie film, which is like, I think three things. Like, for me, a good zombie film is, um, first of all, um, Actually, I don't even know if I have three things. But let's, let's just go with the <laughs> Just start with that, and by the time you get to the second, we'll have forgotten that you promised three, probably. So. All right. Well, now we won't. We call the attention, like, oh, uh, A safe way to sort of grab somebody's attention, John, is to say, well, I'm going to say three things, and nobody's going to interrupt you. They figure you've got things coming once you're done. So go ahead. Give us, give us three <laughs> things, give or take a few. All right. Well, um, I would say that um, for me – First of all, like the the thing that I find most effective about zombie films is this idea of being in an emptying world. Like you know, like I, I think that that is what is most important about the setting of zombie films. Like, is that like it's why it's so easy to fuck it up. Like. Um, you know, like, it, I, I would say that, like, if you point to the original Dawn of the Dead, this is a great example, like, where um, the mall is sort of like a microcosmic examination of this emptying world around them, where uh, all of the residuals of humanity and personality and banality are still surrounding them, but there's nothing there. Like, you know... Um, you know, like once they conquer this mall and they think it's what they want, but because there are no people there, it's, you know, it, it's just infinitely lonelier. Uh, it, it's just infinitely lonelier. And I think that, you know, um, this idea of the world emptying around you is incredibly important for a mm-hmm. zombie film. And no, no, um, let me just oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, no. You, you go ahead. That's well, I want to say I, that's a good point. However, John, I would argue that what you're talking about is more a characteristic of any sort of apocalyptic scenario, like whether it's well, a zombie. I, 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 so, so I just want to say that you're on to something, but I think that that also applies to anything apocalyptic. Uh, I, I, well, I would, I would agree with that. Um, I would agree with that, although I think that the presence of zombies – lends a certain uh, juxtaposition and parody to it that otherwise, uh, like a tragic parody that doesn't exist otherwise. Like, you know, if you watch The Road and somebody's just, uh, like, if you watch The Road and it's just a survivor and there's this old gas station that they're looking at, you know, like, that's sad, but, uh, you know, that's sad, but, like, if there's, like, a zombie, uh, like, one zombie, um, a uh, gas station attendant just, like, by pure, pure muscle, like, decomposing muscle memory, like, bumping up against the gas pumps, then that has a, a very different poignancy, right. um, depending on how it's played. Right. Um, you know, I, I, I'm definitely not arguing that that is it 
of itself. But it is something that I feel, for example, that the remake of Dawn of the Dead misses completely by putting too many people into the mall. Mm-hmm. Like, um, by making, like, by, by putting too many cast members into the mall, um, they actually, like, sort of re- remove the mall as a character from the film. Um, and that's something that sort of bothers me about it. And it's actually something that, like, is always in my mind in Dead Rising and Dead Rising 2 because these are very much, I mean, these are very much Dawn of the Dead games, basically. Right. Um, you know, and it's important to understand what they're doing, that what they're doing differently and how they're playing it. Um, so, that, you know, that's one thing. I think that zombies being a you know, constantly encroaching but not individually threatening force right. is something that's very important to a zombie film. Now, wait, before we get onto that that topic, which I definitely want to touch on, uh, it's interesting what you said about cramming the mall full of survivors uh, in the Dawn of the Dead remake, because I think of what George Romero eventually did with Land of the Dead, where Fiddler's Green is a whole city uh, of, of, of survivors, of people together, uh, and how weird that kind of felt. Like, it kind of, in a way, doesn't feel like a classic zombie movie when you've got a thriving city full of people. Like, there's something about a handful of people in an outpost during a siege that, to me, is so integral to the zombie mythology. You know, the, and, and how, how they sort of come together singly. Like, the house in Night of the Living Dead, where it starts with Barbara showing up, and then the, the uh, I think his name is Ben, the lead character is there, and then more people trickle in. There's this idea of people finding each other in this emptying world that you're talking about uh, that that does seem to be missed in a lot of latter-day zombie, zombie movies. Uh, well, I, I think that's a really interesting point, which is not one that I had considered, like the um, zombie refuge as oasis, you know, like a, a period between hardships. Like that, I, I had never really thought about, but I think that you know you may well be right. Like um, that, that is important. I mean, I think that the less said about the land of the dead, the better. But like, <laughs> uh, you know, um, uh, you know, but I can see what you're talking about. Like um, that, uh, you know, in, in regards to the original Night of the Living Dead, um, that these are people finding each other. I guess that in, in that capacity, like I, I think that I mean, you know wearing my colors on my sleeve here, like, I think that the, the Zack Snyder Dawn of the Dead remake was absolutely abysmal and completely, uh, like, is, uh, you know, basically forgiven entirely on the merits of its first five minutes. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. And, <laughs> you know, and, like, um, basically, like, I would say that, you know, you've, you've pointed out, like, I think a really good reason why, what I'm saying is wrong with Dawn, the Dawn of the Dead remake is not necessarily so, but I think that it also has a lot to do with, like, what happens when these people find each other. Like, the vast majority of people in the Dawn of the Dead remake, when they find each other, just go on living their shallow, you know, two-dimensional, um, you know, uh, two-dimensional lives, like the whatever, the Hollywood producer with the yacht goes on and, you know, keeps on bird-dogging broads in front of, like, you know, camcorders and stuff like that. And, you know, the hicks keep eating beans in the mall court. And, you know, like, it's just, like, it's the same fucking thing, you know, whereas, like, and in actuality, like, once these survivors find each other, they need to also discover, um, 
they also need to discover relationships that would be hidden or impossible to them in real civilization. Absolutely, absolutely. And that, by the way, uh, not to undercut what you're saying, but it's, I think this is hugely important in zombie movies as well. Like that, any good monster movie is not about the monster. It's about the people dealing with the monster. And zombie movies have historically been great about that. Because you can only do so much with a, a mass of slow, shambling dudes, you know, to, to provide drama, to provide any sort of a spark, uh, the, the survivors have to be interesting, and how they deal with being confronted with this, with this sort of incarnation of death and decay, that is where you get the, the drama from a zombie movie. Uh, you know, these, these have to be some of the most boring creatures in all of creature feature history, so it falls to the survivors even more than usual to, to really make things interesting, I think. And... You're, <laughs> And you're absolutely right that guys like Zack Snyder, they can do a hell of an action sequence, but they don't seem to appreciate that that's what it all comes down to. Or, or for instance, the, re- the recent Resident Evil movies that have tried to sort of scratch at that zombie mythology. Uh, I, I think that's an amazing. Uh, I think that's a really good point. Um, and you know, like the, uh, I think that um, you know, and I think you're right. Like guys like Zack Snyder, they can do that action sequence when like shit goes down like you know that's not that, that's not what a zombie movie is like a zombie movie is all about after shit went down like you know and um you know and i don't know like it's just you know like uh, i i i have to admit like the sort of worship that is like sort of poured upon the Zack snyder uh dawn of the dead remake like is, is something that is very irking to me because like for me it's a film that is just like a complete betrayal of the spirit of the the, the film that came right. before, and I'm not, you know, and it's not about like stuff going down differently. It's not about like me being in uh, having a love affair with things that I want to see repeated. It's just that like I just feel like the guy didn't get it, like you know. And um, I, I think Zack Snyder, John, Zack Snyder gets a lot of credit for being a serviceable craftsman. You know, he's not crappy like like Michael Bay. Like he he does style. But he gets geek material, you know, things like Watchmen 300, certainly Dawn of the Dead. Like, these have inherent geek appeal, and he brings this sort of glossy presentation to it, and therefore he gets a lot out of it. You know, he's doing a Superman movie, for instance, so. I I, I know, and like, you know, I I mean, I don't, I mean, this is completely beside the point, because we're supposed to be talking about Dead Rising 2, for God's sakes. But like, I mean, you know, but Zack Snyder uh, in the Superman movie, for me, like, like, I saw 300, I saw Watchmen, and, like, I wasn't holding anything against Zack Snyder. He's just a terrible director. He's a terrible <laughs> visionary. Like, you know, like, like look, at, look at Watchmen, and, you know, like, just think about it for a second. Like, like grab the comic book, and, like, I'm not asking you to judge the film by the comic book. I'm just asking you to judge, the, like, grab the comic book and look at it as a storyboard for the film. Like, and then I want you to look at scenes and, like, pick out, you know, um, you know, like, you know, look at these scenes and be like, what would the most cliched director in Hollywood do as a musical accompaniment for this scene? And so, like, when it's Dr. Manhattan, like, going through Vietnam, it's like war pigs. And, you know, like, when it's, um, you know, uh, the comedian and uh, his name, oh, Night Owl, when they're in the streets, it's like, 
you know, some Jimi Hendrix 60s song. And, it, and it, it's just like the whole soundtrack is just so completely cliched. And I know the soundtrack, you know, I know the director's not directly responsible for the soundtrack, but like, like the whole thing feels like this vision of mediocrity to me where you, you have like every element of the film and it's just like the acting is terrible. Like, you know, like everything is just composed as like bottom of the barrel sort of mediocrity. And, not- um, you, you've got to give you've got to give Zack Snyder credit for Johnny Cash's "When the Man Comes Around" in Dawn of the Dead, though. I mean, you could you can give him a hard time for his musical choices in Watchmen. I'm okay with that, but come on, that was that was that was a little glimpse of something inspired. I thought. In, in, I, 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 okay, I'm going to give you credit on that because <laughs> like that 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 is excellent, and I, I do like that quite a bit. Like, I mean, I, I think everything up until, let's say. Sarah Polly means meets Ving Rains is excellent right. in the in the Dawn of the Dead remake. It's just you know for that 95 minutes after that I have a problem. And let me give you another thing I think that's crucial to the zombie. Well, I, actually I'm not sure it's crucial. Let me ask you about this. Traditional monsters, you know, vampires or werewolves or whatever, they're in love with their uh, because they're so old because they come from such a, a, a tradition of folklore from a pre-rational era, they tend to almost involve some sort of a supernatural element. But zombies, uh, zombies as a product of the 20th century, as something that, that Romero basically invented from some weird Haitian voodoo rituals. I mean, there are early zombie movies that, that are more from that, that voodoo uh, uh, source material. But as we know them from Romero, zombies are almost entirely scientific. Uh, even though even though it's sometimes absurd, they eschew supernatural explanations, uh, mm. and I think that's something that's also kind of important. That that in a way makes zombies belong to us in this this rational scientific era. Uh, well, no, that, I, I, yeah, I, I would agree with that absolutely. Uh, and, and there's also this idea too that uh, the the universal aspect of zombies is this idea of the inevitability of of death. And decay, you know, no matter what, it's slowly approaching. It will always reach you. It cannot be stopped, even though it's slow. Uh, I, I think there's such a personification of this universal idea that everybody will die, and that you can't stop it, and that it's constantly moving closer to you. Uh, whether or not you consciously think of zombies as that, I, I think that's a sensation that it taps into. Uh, that when I'm a kid, I think, wow, it's cool, that zombie got his eyeballs popped out, or, or you know, the helicopter chopped off the top of his head. Um, there's that, that, that sort of violent appeal, that sort of graphic safe gore, because it's, it's, it's visited on what's basically a vegetable, so it makes it safe to kind of cheer for it. There's that hook when you're younger, but as you're older, there's this great metaphor for, for death and mortality, I think, uh, that makes zombie great on a juvenile level and also on a sort of more older, thoughtful, introspective level. And I don't know that, that you can do that with other monsters as well. Well, I, I think it's, um, I, I think that's, that's an interesting point. Like, um, I, I can tell you, I can tell you what was interesting to me as a young person loving zombie films, like say 11 or 12, and, and being an old person being disturbed by them as I am much more disturbed by all horror films now that I'm older. Um, you know, it, it, like when I was younger, um, but when I was younger, like zombies were, 
zombies represented this scenario where even I, a, you know, slightly flabby, asthmatic kid from Malden, could, with enough resourcefulness, you know, basically be a hero. Like, you know. <laughs> and uh, like, Very nice. I love where you're going. Go ahead with this. Nice. Um, and this is something that, like, uh, you know, is it, also a big appeal to, like, say, the Evil Dead movies or something, which um, I wouldn't say are zombie films, but you, you still have, like, Joe fucking idiot being, like, hero to the world, you know? <laughs> like, and... Um, you know, and, like, that's it. Like, you know, what, you know, like, for a kid, you know, like, a zombie movie is all about, like, multiple sm- slow targets and, you know, <laughs> like, and also, like, a world empty of people who are going to be wrestling you for the babes or the weapons and, you know, like, all of this stuff. And, um, which is why they make excellent, excellent video game villains. Uh, not vi- villains, but you know what I mean. Like, uh, vil- fodder. Uh, and, and, yeah, fodder. Um, it's like they totally, they just totally pipe in on like the very essence of um, why you play video games, which is just to basically make you the biggest dick in town, you know, like, <laughs> and, um, but as an adult, like what disturbs me about video games is that idea that like something could happen to me or some like something could happen to me that put me that would put me in a position where I would not be able like that, that I would do something to the people I love that like or that somebody I loved might look and act like the person I know but would assault me like you know just it, it, it's all about like. For me, like zombie movies, all beca- and this is the, the the third element that is very important to me about, uh, like I think that is very important to a good zombie film is like, you know, that person who who turns yep. and you know and, and like, you know, like 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 the person who turns in in a zombie film like and attacks like his wife or his child or his friends or something like that, like people actually understand that and it it it. it, it, it taps into a primal fear that is like, you know, primal fear, because you know, um, of somebody you know actually being complete, you know, somebody you know, like, some, like somebody you think you know being something completely different. Yes, yes. And like a, a zombie film unleashes that in a sort of scientific way, as you said, you know, um, well, they're dead, that's why they're, act, they're acting on instinct and muscle memory and a strange compulsion. But, like, you know, and, I mean, one of the things that I have been thinking recently about zombie films is that there's not necessarily a lot, you know, like when you see, like, you know, like a lot of the great zombie films have, like, for example, the original Dawn of the Dead where Stephen stumbles up um, and, what is her name, Fran, like, goes to hug him or something, you know, it, it's... Um, that idea that somebody who looks so comforting and is so close to yourself would hurt you. Yep. Like, th- there, there's, I think that's something that everybody can understand in one way or the other. It's like, oh, like, like that's, I think that's a nightmare that everybody has, no matter what your background. And it's like something that, like, can be exhibited in 
you know, relationship abuse, alcoholism, like a lot of things. Like this is something that like is a real primal fear of people is that somebody they love, somebody that they trust just one day stops acting the way that they think they should, that they have identified with them as acting. John, that is so, no, that, that's such a good point. And I think of how it, it, it is particularly stark and, and vivid and terrifying in the parent-child relationship. Uh, think of the little girl who turns in the basement and kills her mother in the original Night of the Living Dead. And, and more recently, Robert Carlyle is the father to the two children in 28 Weeks Later, uh, who, which it sort of betrays the internal fiction of, of that zombie mythos. But it's such a powerful message, this idea that your parents are betraying you and, and coming to kill you. You know, that's how 28 Weeks Later opens with a little boy whose parents basically fall into the cabin. And that's the emotional through line for the, the surviving children in that movie. Uh, but, yeah, absolutely, you're absolutely right. Uh, yeah. uh, I do wish, uh, I wrote something about this today on Fidget. I wish that Dead Rising 2 touched on that a little bit more. Because that idea of turning and people you know being converted to the other side, to that, to the, you know, that mass of decaying, dead, flesh-eating ghouls, like that's such an important part of the mythos. And there's really none of that in Dead Rising 2, unfortunately. Uh, well, I think that, um, I, don't, I don't know, you know, like Dead Rising 2, um, and I guess this is the part of the podcast where you, we actually stop dicking around for 90 minutes and actually talk about the game <laughs> we're supposed to be talking about. Um, Dead Rising 2, I think, I think it recognizes what it can and can't do. And, um, you know, like, I, I think that, you know, it recognizes that in a video game scenario, it can't do an emptying world, and it can't do, uh, it can't really do uh, close relationships and that idea of, like, a subverted relationship, or at least right. fucking Capcom can't, can't do it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> like, um, so instead, they, you know, both of the Dead Rising films have been really, really excellent about a constantly encroaching danger and, you know, and the concept of zombies as not like a one-on-one ghoul fight, but as like a environmental, like, like something, something in the environment to be, that is ultimately supposed to be navigated around right. until it becomes too big to ignore. Right. It's very much uh, asymmetrical combat. Uh, it's, it's not, yeah. Uh, by the way, I love, John, that you just called them the two Dead Rising films. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> that is not what I meant. <laughs> uh, so let, let's let's talk about, so did you played the first Dead Rising, I presume, yeah? Yeah, yeah I did, I did, and I loved and, it, I loved it. Uh-huh. Uh, did you ever get to, because this is one of the things that I only did in Dead Rising 2, I never did the successful storyline in the first Dead Rising. I just used it to, to mess around and, and kill zombies and run the, the clock out and, and whatnot. Uh, did you play Dead Rising 1 the right way? Um, can you just define the right way for me? Actually, no, because I'm convinced there is no such definition. What do you think of that? (laughs) I I was kind of trolling you. What is that preciously meta of you? (laughs) um, No, I I think I know what you mean. What you're saying is, is that scenario in Dead Rising where you... Try to beat the missions that you can. You die over and over and over again until the until the moment that you can actually do it. Right, which is which was for me kind of how like that really helps. That really helped me play Dead Rising too, 
uh, as I playing it, I was totally fine early on with letting things fail. Uh, and I think that, and I never really went through Dead Rising one without failing. Like I, I never applied that lesson to Dead Rising one. Uh, yeah, like I, um, I mean, I think that for, well, for for one thing, like Blue Castle, like. Man, did they, I, I, I mean, as somebody who loved both games, like, they hit the sweet spot on Dead Rising 2 because, like, they realized the elements of Dead Rising 1 that, like, you know, like, for example, um, but, but like, they realized the elements of Dead Rising 1 that were, like, completely punishing to people who were just were just not going to buy into the central gameplay conceit of the, of the game, which is the aspect where, you know what, you're supposed to die. Like, this is not, you know, like, you, you're not supposed to reload, you're supposed to die and then start over and you keep your shit, and you just keep dying over and over again until you're able to do this. You know, this is about... You know, this is about hardcore survival, and, you know, if you're not ready for it, we're going to make it easier for you next time because you'll know a little bit more about them all. You know, you'll, you know, be a little bit more powerful. But but ultimately, this is a game about um, – it, it's not about going in there and killing every zombie on the level. It's about, um, it's about time management. It's about um, – it, it's about recognizing that zombies are, you know, a environmental, uh, you know – an environmental distraction over the main enemy of the game. Like, um, in fact, zombies aren't the main enemy of the game. Like, that's what psychopaths right. are for. Right. Um, you know, um, they're just something to kind of distract you and to be in the way. Um, so um, I think Dead Rising 2 is, like, excellent in that regard, where, where they, like, Blue Castle just comes in, and they're just like, okay, we're... Unlike a lesson, you know, unless um, unlike uh, a developer that came in and was just like, "Well, we love the idea about making a zombie game in the mall, but guess what? Fuck you, Dead Rising One." Like, they, <laughs> like, like they actually came in and they're just like, "We love Dead Rising One, but we recognize that you know what? This can be a little bit tighter, and it can be a little bit easy. You know, like it shouldn't be impossible to beat this on your first try." And um, it should be damn hard, but it shouldn't be impossible, which is what I think Dead Rising 2 nails so well. Like, Dead Rising 1, like, I think I was, like, it's 50 levels. I think I was, like, level 47 when I beat that for the first time. Dead Rising 2 I beat the other day. I was level 35, and it was, like, my second. They, like, I'd only quit and restarted once. Right. You know, like, that's that, that's quite a difference. Like, Dead Rising 1 was, like, I think I had restarted the game like four or five times at least before I got onto my winning run, you know. And um, the guys in Dead Rising, you know, the, the Blue Castle games guys, they're, they're smart. Like, I, I wouldn't say it's necessarily like, I mean, it, the things they tweaked are, are the, thing, the things they tweaked to make it a lot less punishing are, are stuff like, you know, the survivors and things like that, you know. Um, it's... I would say they did a really excellent job in, like, balancing the needs of, like, the casual gamer who just wants to, you know, the Gears of War guy who just wants to, like, reload every time they, you know, fail a section, and the person who just really admired and loved, like, Dead Rising's, like, punishing difficulty level and realized that the game was, like, despite the time limit, a sandbox that they could do whatever the whatever held it with the way they wanted. And they were so good, too, at, at accommodating those people without betraying what guys like you and me feel are the core values of Dead Rising 1. I mean, that I, I wouldn't have thought that 
that was possible. I mean, they were just so good at making just the right tweaks to make both sides of the spectrum happy, I think. Uh, it's a really canny balancing act. I'm, I'm just so tickled with how well they've done it. Uh, so did, so you, what was your first playthrough of Dead Rising 2 like? Um, well, I, I had, I had sort of a idea of how a Dead Rising game should be, and, um, unlike a lot of gamers, well, I don't know, that, that, that may sound a little condescending. I guess, a, a, unlike a lot of the way I think people assume Dead Rising 2 would be when they heard that it was more gamer friendly, you know, like, you, you know, more beginner friendly, noob friendly, and, you know, mm-hmm. being done by a Canadian studio, and I mean, <laughs> God knows those guys just roll over at the first sign of trouble. Like, you know, like, I just kind of, like, I, I discounted that, all of that, and I was just like, you know, I'm going to go into Dead Rising 2, and I'm going to kind of try to play it like Dead Rising 1, and um, that's sort of how I did it, and um, I, I, I really got absurdly far, like, I think up until case three on my first playthrough, and, um, you know, and, and um, like, the psychopaths proved to, like, eventually, like, a psychopath ended up killing me, and I started over, um, and, and, you know, but my Oh, you didn't, you didn't play it through to the conclusion. You, you played through three days and then did the restart story thing? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not. I'm not going to vouch for three days. It may have only been oh, two. Oh, but you didn't um, see it through to the one of the bad endings, for instance. Oh no, 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 okay. not at all. Like, because that's the thing. Like, when you've played Dead Rising one, you know that you restart when you die. Like, you don't, you know, just dick around in the mall for the next seven hours, you know, like <laughs> without any story going on. Like, you why not? Why over. not? What, what's what? That's what I did. Because <laughs> I, I let go of the story like on day. One or I, I got to like chapter three or whatever, and that I guess is day two. Uh, and then I I let that fail out, and I just like you say, dicked around in the mall for two days. <laughs> well, I, I think you're a better man than I am. Like I, I think that um, you know, like I, I basically need my dick held for this stuff. Like I I was just kind of like you know I, I don't know like um like, like a lot of the ele- the core elements that appeal to people about Dead Rising two are not as exciting to me. Like um. The idea of like, well, wow, if you, you know, take this dinosaur hat and you put a, a rocket, a firework in it, you can make a spitting dinosaur hat that you can put on a zombie. I'm just like, well, great. That's like like 40 seconds to see an animation. Like, fantastic. Like, but you're I'm getting not... double XP. What? <laughs> you're, not, you're, not, you're not grinding, John. You're supposed to grind the, the, the firework spitting dinosaur masks for XP. <laughs> Double XP that is infinitely less valuable than just rescuing like one bikini babe, like who can like kick the ass of every zombie on screen just by handing her like I don't know like a milk carton. You know? I, like, I, I mean, love yeah, I love those three chicks at the Palisades pool. Those chicks, are <laughs> I was more than happy to pay them because you know they ask money to come along. I loved equipping those chicks with shotguns and running around. That was so awesome. Well, you're, you, I mean, you're from LA. I, I I'm willing to pay them. You know, like I, I, uh, <laughs> how dare you? How dare you? I offend. Um, no, I'm just saying. But uh, no, no, and, like I actually love those. I, I, like I love a lot of these survivor encounters in uh, Dead Rising too. Like, um, you know, like I, I love the girl who's like in the clam. Oh, no, no, she's not in the clam. I like the girl in the clam in the mermaid outfit. You know, yep. like um, who needs to be carried. You know, like I, 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 I like a lot of the, like the survivors in Dead Rising One. Like I don't remember because they were such assholes. Yeah. Like, you know, they were just like. You know, 
it'd be great if there was something useful about them, but like really they were just like gigantic like balls of raw meat that you were tr- dragging behind your main character, like begging <laughs> zombies to gang up on you and eat you. Like, um, I mean, Dead Rising 2 clearly erred too much on the side of caution in this regard. Like, uh, survivors are nigh invulnerable, and, you know, like, there's nothing else to say about it. But, like, Dead Rising 1, like, I mean, I don't know if you remember Dead Rising 1, but, like, Dead Rising 1, like, had this whole... You know, like, for you to get, like, the perfect victory, you had to, like, save all of them. Or maybe it was just an achievement, but you had to save all of them. Right. All of them. And it was just, like, impossible to do because they sucked, you know? Yeah. Like, it wasn't because you were bad or because you weren't doing the right thing. It was just because, like, like, whoever was programming it was, like, on a bender when they did, like, this one routing algorithm or something, you know? Like, it just... Well, I think part of part of what that did accomplish, though, that that I think is a little bit missing in Dead Rising Two, although I don't mind it, is the the sense of real danger. Like when you got a survivor back to the safe house in Dead Rising One, it was an accomplishment. You know, when you get yeah. a survivor back in Dead Rising Two, it's just busy work. Uh, and and the really the dilemma with the survivors in Dead Rising Two is: do I cash them in at the safe house? Or do I bring them along and make them part of my zombie-killing posse? Uh, and I love that aspect of it, but it does it does impact the sense of danger a little bit. Uh, it makes it sometimes feel a little too safe uh, and too easy. Well, I, yeah, and I agree. I mean, because I also think that, uh, you know, your survivors in Dead Rising 2 are actually, like, within the if you look at it from the perspective of the game world, they're more powerful than you are. Like, which... Right. You know, since you're supposed to be the guy rescuing them and the Superman stuff, that just doesn't make any sense. And it's very jarring when you, you know, bring, like, one elderly grandmother to beat the guy with, like, the pig head on his codpiece who's going to chainsaw rape some girl with her bad lipstick. And, like, he's impossible for you to kill, like, five times. And, like, you bring Granny along with, like, you know, a super soaker or whatever, and she just toasts the bitch while you're jumping over the partition five or six times you know i do i do kind of uh yeah i i i do kind of wish that there was a maybe like a a game plus mode like where it was more difficult the survivors weren't as resilient uh this is minorly spoilerific in a minute we'll get into spoilers but you know something happens after the third day where the dynamics get mixed up a little bit and I appreciated how that raised the stakes a little bit at that point. I wish there was some way to make the rest of the game feel that way uh, sometimes. But Yeah, I mean, um, and I think that the thing that was, like, awesome about Dead Rising 1, which, I, I, as I understand it, like, I, I mean, full confession, I've only beat the story mode to Dead Rising 2 at level 35. Um, I got overtime mode. I have not finished that. But no, what is so, that? What is overtime mode? Because I don't think I have that. Overtime Overtime mode is when you do everything right. Like, and it, it kind of sucks if you're preparing for a podcast and trying to beat the game. Like, like the second before uh, the guy who's hosting the podcast calls you for an interview about the game because, <laughs> like, you know, like you're you've you know you're at level 35 and you go uh, go to beat this guy, uh, the, the main boss, and after three or four tries you beat him and you're like, oh great. Here's the cutscene. Now I can talk about the ending intelligently. And instead, it's like to be continued. Hmm? Wait a minute. Well, I didn't get that. How did you get that? 
basically it's a punishment for playing the game too well if you're trying to do a podcast. Like, um, it's, if you save, I think, if you do every single one of the missions, if you save all of, I think most of the survivors, and if you give TK the Zombrex, spoiler, um, you will, and if you beat the end boss and it's all within the time limit, you will get the special ending, which gives you overtime mode, which is basically like TK escapes, kidnaps your daughter, kidnaps the, the bangable redhead in the tight jeans who's an eco-terrorist, and, like, you're supposed to get him, like, bubbly champagne and whatever, magnum condoms and stuff like that around the mall. Like, you've got to get, get him a new, like, certain things around the mall, like items that they send you on missions for. And then once you get them, I guess you get to fight him, and then you get the real good ending. Oh. It's like another 24 hours at the end of the game. Oh, and that 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 acts, that last part is called overtime mode? It's not like some new way you can play the game? No, it's called overtime mode, and I, I mean, I, who knows what it, whether it's supposed to be the real ending, but it's the ending I got, which is the ending where you do everything really well. Okay. I, I thought, I'd heard about overtime mode, and I thought maybe it was like some game plus thing, but it's, uh, uh, all right, so running errands for TK, huh, how about that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, like, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I was kind of doing it up until you called, and, you know, it's... No, I mean, it was fine. Like, you know, it, like I, as far as I can tell, the timers don't actually run down, so it's just kind of like, uh, you know, whenever you want to beat this game after you explore the mall, oh. time constraints, you can go do that. Like, but if you want to, if you want to fight this boss and get get to the end, I mean, uh, people who are listening to this podcast can correct me in the thread, but like, because I, I don't actually know, but it, that's the way it seemed to me after, like, 20 oh, that, Yeah, that totally made overtime. That, that Yeah, I don't know sports much, but that totally makes sense. Like, the game goes into overtime, and you just mess around with it as long as you want to, and, uh, okay. So so it's kind of yeah. like a, a, it's like it's being rewarded with a sandbox mode, kind of. I, I, I think so. I mean, yeah, that's the way I feel. Like, the original game had very different kind of sandbox modes, and, uh, uh, which which I appreciated, and I guess they're not in the sequel, which is right. disappointing. But um, downloadable content, had, John DLC. Uh, well, isn't the <laughs> DLC just going to give you like a Frank West skin for your doppelganger, like in co-op? Uh, let's see what they've announced. Yeah, it it looks like it might be like a separate. I, I could be mistaken on this. It looks like it could be like a separate adventure kind of thing. Like maybe, uh, did you play Case Zero? By the way, the one that takes place in the the prequel that takes place in the small town. Welcome to Germany. Violence not av- and available on Xbox Live. Well, what are you talking about? You played Dead Rising 2. How did? That's because I ordered it from Austria, and I, you know. Ah, so you can't download Case Zero out there in uh, in Germany. Uh, okay. Well, I'll go as far as to say, two weeks ago when I tried because all of you son of bitches were talking about it in front of me, and I was desperate because I love Dead Rising. Like, no, I could not. Um, that sucks because it's very good. It's very good, John. You, so you don't know how Katie got infected. Well, I'm assuming she was bitten somewhere around the line. Well, you know, like that's yes, much about it. But by whom? By her mother. Very good. We're going back to the whole uh, uh, parent-child relationship being violated, yeah. Uh, and it's just a little tiny mention in Case Zero, too. They don't make a big deal of it. I don't know if they just didn't appreciate how what a cool detail that was. Uh, but, uh, yeah, yeah, so she got infected by her mother. Uh, I, would, I, would like to, I would like to call attention to the fact that, like, um, 
I do not. I would not consider Dead Rising two to be a deep game or a deep narrative in the slightest. However, um, one of the things, perhaps as uh, a male, I, uh, I don't know, but one of the things that I find most moving about games, like in one of the uh, motifs that I find most moving about games, is about uh, males connecting with their daughters, and um, you know, like and you know, like you see this in. Um, Silent, Silent Hill 1 and um, Dead Rising 2 like I know a lot of people think like you know like I've, I've seen a lot of the, the, the comments on the Dead Rising 2 thread where people are just kind of saying well you know I wish I didn't have to go back and inject my daughter with you know this anti-zombie medicine like she's such a creepy little goblin like you know why do I have to do that and um I, like, like that was an aspect of the game that actually works for me. Like the yep. the aspect where I come back every 24 hours and this is something I need to do for real consequences. Like that's something that actually tugged on a real yeah. thing for me is that idea of protecting innocence in a world I can't control. Um, and it's also something that, yeah, it's something that was like actually meaningful to me. Um, my, my- and. Sorry, go on. Oh, my theory about that, John, is I, I think we, we see that. You, the awesome mention of Silent Hill, though, by the way. Very, very good call. Uh, I also think of Bioshock 2, um, yeah. e- even that arty game that Bill Dungsterman hated, The Path. I, I think part of what's happening here is that the guys who make video games are no longer just slacker dudes in their 20s, but they're growing up and they're getting married and they're having their own children, and it's something that uh, is of concern to them, that they're aware of. Uh, And I love, you know, video games are still a very young industry, but we're only now getting to the point where the guys making them are old enough to appreciate that kind of thing, I I feel. Uh, So, yeah, I'm I'm glad you highlighted that. Well, I'm I'm, I'm really glad you mentioned Bioshock 2, which I didn't think of, but it's like something, uh, I mean, God, I I wish I had been on on call for the podcast for that because, um, like, I'm... A lot. Of, I know a lot of people were were disappointed with that as being more rapture, but like I simply thought it was as good as it could be, and um, I thought that it you know extended the subliminal message of you know fatherhood from the first first game to extremely profound uh, depths in the second game. And I, I, I'm, I was extraordinarily moved by Bioshock 2. But I, I think that, you know, I, I really do think that that's actually something that you're right about, that, like, game designers, like, people like uh, you or me um, 10 years ago or whatever, we, we just didn't give a fuck. And, and now, like, the idea of uh, fatherhood you know, like, I mean, because gaming is, like, video games are a male, um, you know, like, video games largely are a male fantasy. Like, I'm not saying that women don't game and that they can't have, that, that they can't have emotionally moving experiences out of gaming. But, like, um, I, I do feel like that gaming is, like, ultimately, like, the, or the groundwork of game fantasy, like gaming as it is right now, is like a male fantasy. And I think that, like, the encroaching of, like, not, you know, like, if you go, like, to Duke Duke of 3D, like, you're protecting a girl you just want to fuck or Like, you're not even protecting her. You're just, like, waggling a bunny at her and hitting the space bar. But, like, I feel like when you see designers doing stuff like writing games around protecting women and stuff like that, it's like... 
an, an indication somehow of, of the way that these same designers have evolved into their own lives over the last 10 years or whatever. And, like, I, I, feel, I feel like right now we're living in an extremely, um, I don't know, an extremely, like, um, poignant time as far as, like, sort of plotting the way that uh, designers at a, at a very naive time in, you know, gaming history were operating as, as as they grow up. Like, I think that that's, you know, I think we're seeing, like, a lot more meaningful interaction and meaningful plots in regards to things like fatherhood and being a husband yeah. and being, you know, I guess that's all I have to say. Well, and it, it, it's, point. it's telling, too, that in a, in a game with a story as really utterly ridiculous as Dead Rising 2, and I, I wish they could have done better with their story, that you can still see a glimpse of that in there. So, yeah. Uh, I, I found it... Uh, I, don't, I don't really follow the Metroid games. I'm not a huge fan of that whole thing. But I, I found it kind of encouraging to see uh, the, the traditional game media noticing and, and taking umbrage at how the heroine in Metroid Other M, which is the most recently released Metroid game for the mm-hmm. week, how she was portrayed as sort of weak and helpless, um, and uh, how it affected this, this way that video games treat and regard women. I, I didn't have any problem. What little I saw of the game, I, I don't really know that it was a problem, but I love the fact that people noticed and commented and wanted to talk about that, who might otherwise just say how awesome Metroid M is, that the, the, the mainstream, generally breathless adolescent video game media was, was really concerned with how Seamus uh, was portrayed in Metroid Other M. I love the fact that they cared about that. Uh, well, I think that, you know, I mean, I think that we may be coming into uh, an era of, well, game criticism and game commentary, uh, even casually, where people are talking just as much about their own preconceptions about right. the way that character, a certain archetype of character should act in a game uh, versus, you know, the way that they actually do act. Like, um, you know, I, I have not played Metroid Other M. I have seen the, um, you know, the, the video clip that right. everybody's talked about where she's cowering over Ripley, which, you know, fanboys are like, oh, she's she's met him a million times before. <laughs> like, what's the problem? You know, <laughs> like, she's kicked his ass a million times. Um, you know, and, and I understand that, but I also think that, like, I also think that, you know, from what I have seen based uh, about that, like, a lot of the outrage is informed about, like, the way that they think yes. strong woman character in a video game should act, which is fearless, and I don't know that I agree. Like, I think, you know, like, I do not think that uh, being a positive feminine role model or positive anything role model in a game mean, means showing no weakness. Like, any any more than I think that that's true in literature or film. Like, yeah. you know, like, um, a strong character in a game should be exactly subject to the rules of how they are in any other art form or narrative form, which is like being strong in a narrative form doesn't mean being weak. It means overcoming weakness. Exactly. And, John, I'm so glad you say that because it gives me the opportunity to say, I suspect, I haven't played enough of the game to know for sure, so I can't really say with authority, but I suspect that what's going on in Metroid Other M is exactly what you're talking about. 
it's not Seamus being uh, reduced to helpless. It's Seamus struggling with doubt and insecurity. And I think that's an important theme and topic for uh, for video games to explore because video games are a power fantasies basically. So I, my to my mind, it seems that the the creators of Metroid Other M were wanting to sort of deconstruct that a little bit because in, in, she does end up prevailing, but she has these moments of doubt and insecurity that turn her into a little girl. Just like when us when men are scared, you know, we we might feel like little boys. We might revert to uh, the, the sense of helplessness we felt as a child. Uh, so, so I do suspect that a lot of the criticism of Metroid Other M might be uh, unfair and missing the point. Uh, and so I'm so glad that you mentioned that. Um, look at us talking about Metroid. Good Lord. <laughs> okay, so real quick, I want to ask you about Dead Rising 2, a couple of things. Uh, did you find that stupid tiger? I'm sick of hearing people talk about how awesome no, he is. I, I, you know, actually, I, I saw your message on the tiger. I was relieved to see this message about the tiger because I did not find this. Like, everybody's like, have you seen the fucking tiger? I'm like, no. And the thing is, is when people were like, have you seen the tiger? And I was like, no. It wasn't like I had missed a mission or anything. Like, it was just like... Like, I had done every mission to, like, to completion that I had gotten. Like, I was at 100%. I had never failed fucking anything. I think one survivor that I had collected had died, and then everybody's talking about... The tiger's the best, the best survivor you can get in the game. You can, you can feed it candy and it gives you blowjobs. It's wonderful. Like, and like, you know, and, and like, I'm just like, all right, well, that's great. You know, like, I wish I'd gotten that tiger, but like, you know, but no, I did not get this tiger. And apparently, if you play the game correctly, which apparently, despite my ending ass in my overtime mode, I did not, like, if you play this game correctly, like, the tiger's, like, one of the first fucking survivors you catch. Well, no, wait, you say correctly, but why the hell would someone go way over, I think you have to go way over to the Palisades Mall, like, on the first day or something. I don't, I don't, why, why would you go way over there? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I love, on one hand, that it gives you little treats if you do unexpected things. Because obviously there's sort of a, with the way that it unfurls the survivors and the psychopaths and the story missions, there's a sort of a basic way it's trying to guide you through the content. Uh, so I love the fact that there's stuff waiting outside of that basic guidance. But why is anyone going to go way over there that early in the game? That's what I don't understand. Well, oh, well I mean, that's just it. I mean, on one hand, that's, like, actually, that's a fair thing to go over there way in the game because, like, um, once you get high enough to level, like, once you're comfortable with the timing and stuff like that, like, of course you go over there. Like, I, I almost feel like uh, Blue Castle meant, uh, like, like they, they really meant for you to discover this awesome fucking tiger, like, once you were higher level and you had a time to dick around. But, like, for whatever reason, like... Joe Idiot was, like, wandering over there and decided to write a game sack about it. Yeah, like, exactly. You know, and, right. like, Stupid and, internet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like, and it's just, like, and so now everybody's, like, rushing up there. Um, <laughs> I did not, like, I did not find it because I live in Europe. Uh, I, I didn't, I, I was saying that in, like, a very pompous sort of way uh, for, for humorous effect. I didn't want it to actually sound pompous. <laughs> uh, like, because, but because I lived in Europe, like, it, it came out here, like, 
a week before it came out. In oh, that's right, you and jerk. That's right, pompous jerk. <laughs> yeah, so I was like, point, I was posting fucking spoilers on the Dead Rising Two thread before you even know, knew what was happening. Like I was, but I did not find this tiger. Like I was, I was just like, there were no, there were no. Uh, uh, is it facts or FAQs? I never talked to actual gamers. Okay, well, first of all, I, I don't. Know. I'm not going to trust what you say because earlier in this conversation, you said niche. It's niche. Who says niche? Oh my god! So Who I don't. Says niche. It sounds like something you dig out of your hair. Yeah. <laughs> Americans say niche, John Brownlee. When you move over here, get used to it. <laughs> uh, I, I always say fact because I can't be bothered to spell out F-A-Q. That's just way too... Well, yeah, I mean, that, that seems very inelegant to me. I say fact as well. But it, but at the same t- time, it also sounds like sort of like you're kind of too much into Judge Dredd or something. Like, <laughs> Can anyone really be too much into Judge Dredd? I don't know. Uh, okay, so you didn't find the tiger either. I, I on my third playthrough, I'm going to restart and, and get the frickin' tiger because I got to see this thing. Uh, here's another one. But uh, who is your favorite psycho? Oh God, I, I don't know, man. I, I think it's Slappy. Like, oh God, I hated that boss battle though. That one was well, that one you, still like, is. Like, tough. What do you mean by what do you mean by favorite? Like you know, like or, like Slappy was. Like infinitely irritating, but he was favorite also is like, whatever. It's whatever you want it to mean, John Brownlee. So <laughs> if you want to pick Slappy, the, my problem with Slappy was I just even on my second playthrough, he just kept killing the survivors that I brought to the battle because he's got that area effect flamethrower thing. So he was the first time where I realized, hey, you know, these survivors aren't necessarily an I win button. Uh, so uh, yeah, so Slappy yeah. was aggravating to me. Well, I would say that, like, um, from my perspective, the reason I like Slappy is, um, well, I, I don't know. Like, there's actually this whole level about um, Dead Rising's um, sort of tongue-in-cheek commentary on uh, on itself that I, like, really love and I really want to talk about. But, like, in, in regards to Slappy in particular and the psychopaths in particular, like, um I, I think what I like about him most is that he's like, he, he's sort of like, because he's wearing this gigantic mask and stuff, he, he seems the most like a cartoon character born into this chaotic world. And so I don't spend a lot of time like worrying about like, you know, like for example, like how this guy in the pork face cod piece can be like running around with a chainsaw as a virgin, you know, like, and just, you know, and like just snap, like the, the moment he snaps is when zombies come out. Like I find like the psychopath system to be a little weak. I think I lost you. The psychopath system. I think you've been interrupted by a psychopath. The psychopath is jamming our signal. Hmm. All right, John Brownlee. Yeah, so the thing about the psychopath that I find a little bit weak is basically how, I don't know, it, it, it just seems like that they were spending everything up until the zombie holocaust waiting to just snap. Like the whole time when they were just, you know, like on edge right to that second to snap. And um, <laughs> one of the things I like about Slappy, which may actually be very superficial, but I love the fact that it's like I love that – you know, bobblehead that he's wearing because that makes me 
capable of like thinking of him as like a character born to like an absurd character like born to this chaos like you know like you know like his tragedy actually seems like a, a lot more you know, be, you know, within the psychopath system, like because he's wearing this ridiculous mask and he's on skates and he's firing super soakers filled with napalm or whatever, like, um, but but that mask in and of itself is enough for me to kind of you know like, and the fact that his whatever girlfriend has died who is also in this mask, like, you know, because all of these characters are, all of the psychopaths are essentially cartoons. The fact that uh, he's literally right. a cartoon, nice. like, I, I can really, I, I actually connect with that more than anything else. Like, the other ones just, like, seem too over the top, and, I, I, you know, I, I relish that in one hand, but in the other hand, it's, it, it makes me go, you know, like, like, I'm fine with Dead Rising having the tone it has. Like, I don't want another tone. It's just, like, at the same time, I'm just, like, there's this little level in me where it's just, like, you know, it, it, it's so unrealistic, uh, right. you know, because basically, like, if you look at the um, psychopath system in Dead Rising or Dead Rising 2, it's like the people who give a shit about the zombie holocaust are all these, like, absurd cartoon characters out to kill you, and the people who don't give a shit are the survivors who you just, like, hit the Y button to get through the fucking conversations <laughs> with, you know, and then re- reward you with PP. But, like, they're, like, that's actually it. Like, the psychopaths are the ones who you actually engage with from a narrative perspective, and the survivors, the one you're supposed to be giving a fuck about, you play strip like the worst game of strip poker ever was. <laughs> so this, this gets to what, who is in a way my favorite psychopath, because what I love about it is that they do a little uh, narrative jujitsu where she turns out to not be a psychopath at all, but a survivor. And that's the little episode with BB um, where she's a singer. Exactly. She's the comeback. She's basically share, it seems. And you're doing <laughs> errands for her, expecting that you're going to have to fight a boss battle with her. Uh, and you're like, okay, I got to do this stuff, and then I'm going to have to fight her to free all these survivors that she's holding hostage. And you end up playing a stupid little, and I don't even think you can fail this. I'm not sure. You end up playing a stupid little uh, rhythm matching game, <laughs> which is bad, by the way. And I think it's intentionally bad. It's There's no rhythm really to it. bad. Like. I'm, I'm, I'm actually not sure you can beat it either, like, because I did so poorly on it, and yet I won that, like, yeah, I, I think it's impossible. Exactly. It. I think it's intentionally, and there's no rhythm to it, because I'm good at rhythm games. Like, I love the dancing mini games in, in Sid Meier's Pirates. Uh, you know, I, I love that kind of stuff, and I... I I, when it was when I started playing, I was like, "Wait a minute! I can't find a rhythm here. What's going on?" So I think it's intentionally bad, just like she's a bad singer. Uh, and and you're thinking, "Okay, well, I'm going to end up failing and having to fight her." But you end up failing, and she becomes a survivor, and she joins you. And and it's not a boss battle. And I love how you kind of get psyched out there, and it calls into question this whole idea of, you know, what it means to be a psychopath, because she's clearly being set up as someone that you're going to have to fight. And you end up winning her over. Uh, I, I just I like that. I, I appreciate that little twist. Can you um, not to miss the point? But can you actually save her? Like, 
I, I feel yeah. like I've heard tell that you can, but no, like, I didn't your know party. how to do yeah, it. Yeah, yeah so... You can uh, join her, she can join your party. That's oh, awesome. yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah, I love Bibi. Bibi was, uh, and she, you know, give her a, an assault rifle or whatnot. Yeah, you can absolutely save her. She, uh, maybe that is the difference, John. Maybe if you don't do well enough at the mini game, she just outright dies. But when I did it, uh, in both playthroughs I've gotten her, uh, I successfully did the little rhythm mini game. She does her show. And then she throws herself into the zombie crowd that you've assembled. And if you mm. kill the zombie crowd, she joins you just like the other survivors. You have to do the annoying little, uh, you know, B to talk, Y, Y, Y to skip her dialogue uh, to recruit her. Her, her. The people that she's imprisoned automatically go into your party once you do the little mini game. But then if you save her from the zombie crowd, uh, you, can, you can do the dialogue and she'll follow you back to the safe house or run around with you as long as you want. Uh, killing well, them. I can. I, I. I mean, actually, I know. Like, I did what you were saying, but you're right. Like, um, I, I think that the problem was is that, like, instead of trying to talk to her, yes, I was using a bunch of boxing gloves with uh, Bowie knives type uh, <laughs> to them, and like, instead, I was trying to cut the zombies off of her, and you know, like, maybe the slippery slope and one thing led to another, and you know, like, perhaps I did not get that closure that I was looking for, right. but. Uh, <laughs> No, that, that that makes sense. Uh, third playthrough, I guess. <laughs> uh, what, John, was your outfit of choice? Ah, oh, man. Well, you know, the thing is, is like, I don't... Okay, so my outfit of choice is actually, like, right outside of the safe house. And it was, like, jean short shorts and, like, a plaid yes. top that was, With your like, midriff tied up under your cleavage. Yeah, yep. yeah, exactly. And then I wore, like, a, like Groucho Marx glasses. <laughs> right. And um, I think I had, like, also simultaneously, like, a huge, you know, a huge, like, beard. And, Where did you get the you know, beard? I've seen screenshots of that. I, I would love to have that mountain man beard. Where is that? I, 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 yeah, you need to, you, you just need to, like, actually, it's very close. Like, you just need to go to a sink really close to the safe house, as I remember. Like, there's a sink. Like, I think if you turn to the right, right next to the casino, don't don't quote me on it, except if you upload this podcast. But, like, <laughs> I, I think that it's right if you, like, right before the casinos that are to the right. Those aren't the Americana. So it's a hairstyle thing. It's one of the hairstyle choices. Yeah, it's one of the hairstyle choices. Okay. I, I generally don't care, like, because, um, <laughs> you know, I'm one of these people who, like, if they have the Lego hat on, like, it's, it's the fact that, like, I can't see the guy's face through the right. cutscenes. So that actually annoys me. But, um, you know, but but for the most part, um, yeah, like, that's what I remember. Like, actually, I thought that was very funny. I remember calling my girlfriend and just being like, Oh, check this out! I'm in like I'm in like Britney like Britney Spears horror mode, but I've got like a gigantic <laughs> beard and like a really nice wicker hat and you know like and <laughs> oh that's great you know like I don't know read you know I ended up uh, I think my favorite if just I, I I would try on things just for the hell of it but uh, I the one I ended up sticking with was uh, a tuxedo but barefoot which kind of gave it a diehard vibe you know like John I McClane. know why. The thing is, is I know why you stuck with that, because that is the 
outfit that I ended the game with as well, and it's because that's the only way to get that, like, you need to dress up for right. a share. And once you do that, you lose your your previous outfit. And um, that's basically the way I finished the game as well, because I didn't give a shit enough to redress at that point. I was just, like, dealing with the, you know, the new zombies and stuff. Now, will she accept, like, business casual, or do you have to be in the tuxedo for her? Do you know? Oh, I don't know. Like, and the thing is, is like, that was the point where I started cheating. Like, it was just like, she she seemed very demanding, and I was so far, and it was like obviously something where, you know, it was obviously something where it wasn't skill alone that was going to get me. You know, it was just like having explored the mall and the amount of times, and like, you know, I, I mean, I love the way the game is is plotted, and I love the way that the game is set up, and I love the idea that they're like you're supposed to find everything. But, but the bottom line is that, like, I don't have an infinite amount of hours to explore this mall. Like, I have, like, a certain amount of hours per week to, to fuck around. And, um, you know, when she's just like, you know, go find the, go find the magic slippers. I'm just like, <laughs> you know, gamefacts.com. <laughs> Well, I played honestly and and never had to actually I say that but I did have to look up something uh I I reached that point at the the boss fight against the helicopter on the winch. At that point I was like I just don't care to figure this out. I'm just going to go look up the answer. This is the end boss, yeah. Um the end boss is uh is the the main villain on the platform oh. calling in the C one thirty gunship with the flares. This is the maybe penultimate boss, I don't know. It's where TK this tries to escape this, in a helicopter. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this is TK. Um yeah. Th- that one's completely unobvious, I think. Yeah. Like, and I just have to yeah. say, John, if I never in my video gaming career from, from henceforth, if I never fight another helicopter, that's fine with me. Yeah, I'm I'm okay with that. Like, you know, it, it's really weird how like Half Life made it seem so cool, but like, <laughs> like yeah. everybody else has ruined the concept for me. Um, like, like fighting a uh, like fight, fighting a helicopter, you know, which is essentially like an airborne be- vehicle of like fairly limited. Z and Y access mobility, like you know, it's 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 not actually all that challenging, like. But they made that seem so strategic to me, and like now I get something like Dead Rising Two or whatever, where it's just like, like it's almost the fact that I assume that it should be able to move wherever the fuck it wants that that makes me incapable of beating it the first time because it's just like I assume this and then it turns out that like the programmers actually don't know how to do that realistically <laughs> and like you know instead there's like a winch there in Dead like as in Dead Rising 2 which you're like oh yeah just like throw the winch on it and then like maybe you can like throw a bag of oranges at the rotor blades and that's what's going <laughs> to kill it like for me it was the uh, suitcases of money just just chuck it it takes four of them chuck them into the rotors and you're done with that particular stupid boss fight Uh, (laughs) i I know like that was so hard for me the first time but then you know like it's just i I mean it's just so weird like can't you do better with a helicopter you know (laughs) uh so let's see are you done with it you're gonna do another playthrough you think um i don't think so um like you know I mean, actually, I, I, I don't know if you're, you know, like if you want to talk about this, but I, I would like to talk about the a, a spoiler thing about the 
um, the fast zombies in the third act. Okay. Well, yeah, no, we're we're in spoiler territory. I think we've already been there for a bit. But uh, yeah, do you not like? They're not. Well, they're faster. Uh, they're not. I, I mean, they're not like left for dead fast. I, I would say. Uh, do you not like the faster zombies? No, no. Actually, I wanted to talk about how elegant I thought that was. Um, I, I feel like the uh, Blue Castle guys like really did something great there, which yeah. is just like, you know, like usually if you talk to zombie fans, like they're segmented around like the whole fast and slow zombies angle. But like what 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 they did in Dead Rising too, like uh, uh, you know, with the and um, actually not sure how to make my point here. Like I guess what I would say is that. The, in a video game context, a fast zombie is something that needs to be dealt with. Like, it is a threat that has to be dealt with. Like, it is not something you put off. It's not something you avoid. It's not something that you dodge behind a wall for, like, or duck behind a counter for. Like, um, a, vast, a fast zombie is something that you must kill to progress, and that's why games like the Left 4 Dead series are the way they are. Like, you know, um, slow zombies wouldn't work in Left 4 Dead series because you could just dodge by them. Like, Left 4 Dead has to be fast. Like, um, you know, and a game, but a game like Dead Rising or the Dead Rising series where um, zombies are, like, sort of a navigational threat more than an, like, actual threat to your life and, like, you know, if you know what you're doing and if you're far along in the game, like, they, early on they are. But, like, later on in the game, they're more, like, a navigational interference and something to be plotted around than mm-hmm. anything else. Mm-hmm. Like, um, you know, like, I, in that circumstance, like, you don't, you know, like, fast zombies really don't belong. And what I really like about the way that Dead Rising 2's last act deals with fast zombies is... They make them just fast enough that you have to think about whether or not you need to deal with them. Yes, yes. But, but you can still dodge around them if you want to. Like, it, it's, it's a really great mixture of two competing philosophies in zombie design, which have come out over the last, since 28 days later. Um, and... It, 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 it's a compromise that could only work in a video game, you know, where you can gauge the speed and the threat for yourself. Mm-hmm. I like, too, how it creates a sense of uh, cascading failure. Like, if something goes wrong, if you're, you're going to go ahead and engage them, and then one of them grapples you, and you've got the multiple button presses, and maybe you fail that, and then by the time you've gotten out of it, there are three more on you. Uh I, I, I like how that, that really raises the stakes, uh, how e- even though by the time you get to those guys, you're going to be more powerful, you're going to have more health blocks, it kind of balances that a little bit. Uh, Absolutely, yeah. Uh, and that's why I was saying before, I really wish there was some way you could play on like a game plus mode where they were present throughout, um, where you had to deal more with that. Well, I think you should try, like, I mean, I'm not really far enough to, into to say and but, like, you know, what you should try to do is you should try to, I mean, you've beaten it the once. So, like, what level are you now? Like, I've beaten it twice. I, uh, I've, been, I've been through, like, I'm on my third playthrough, and I am level, I want to say, like, 38, maybe. Uh, oh, no, no, good Lord, I'm in my 40s. I'm, I'm, I, think, I think I'm around 44. The level cap is 50, so I'm well on my way to bumping up against that. 
Well, I, I think if you if you try it again, like, and you just stick to just following the arrow, like, you will be able to basically beat it to its satisfaction and get to overtime mode. And, I, I, like, I, like I said, I don't know. Like, I'm, like, 20 or 30 minutes into overtime mode, so right. who knows where that's going to lead me. But I think that it's, you know, like, but, but what I've seen so far is, very definitely, like, you've still got the fast zombies. You've still got the, like, you've got fast zombies, and also the zombies are in their uh, nighttime mode. Um, oh, right, which, right. You know, which, which is nice because, I mean, this game has very definitely, like, ramped down the nighttime difficulty compared to the predecessor. It's sort of odd, too, John. I noticed there's no explanation of it for people who haven't played Dead Rising 1. I remember thinking in Dead Rising 1 they explained the stuff about uh, specifically the nighttime mode and the queens. So coming mm. to Dead Rising 2, you know what those are. But I think if you come blindly into Dead Rising 2, you get the cutscene with nighttime mode, and it, it it's not really clear that the zombies have changed. And then you get the cutscene with the queen that is going to make no sense whatsoever if you have not played Dead Rising 1, uh, which just shows him stepping on a bug, and then suddenly zombie head, heads explode. Uh, and then they later go into the plot about how they're harvesting the zombies for queens, but I, I, I thought it was a little odd that they don't do any exposition about those two elements. Uh, well, I, I think that I mean I, I think that they that's absolutely right. Like that they've I, I, I feel like these are things that like maybe residuals of the early drafts of like the design documents, like. Um, you know, like, clearly these are guys who loved the first game, and they were trying to make it accessible to a new audience without compromising, uh, you know, co- compromising the, uh, the ethos that led to the first game and stuff like that. But, like, um, like for example, the queen, like, as a weapon, like, you know, you kill right. that one zombie in a crowd that um, drops the queen and you snag it up. That means absolutely nothing in Dead Rising 2 because the only only context that you used it in Dead Rising 1 was to save survivors or to free them from something. So, you know, by making the survivors much better, like, that doesn't make any sense. Ah, right, like, right. Once that doesn't make any sense, like, um, a lot of the plot, unfortunately, doesn't make sense. Like, the whole guys in the, the tunnels who are, um, you know, I, I, I don't know what the hell they're doing. <laughs> what I loved about what I loved about that, John, it it, it only in retrospect seems to make a little sense. I think there, that ball in there is like some zombie summoning. Like I love the fact that you have to go to the waypoint, and as you're going, you you notice. Wait a minute, am I just? Are, the zombies seem less aggressive. What's going on? Is this a bug? And as you get closer, the zombies ignore you, and you end up walking in, and then you get a cutscene where Chuck is just sort of strolling in <laughs> alongside the zombies. I, I love the way that it fundamentally shifts the paradigm just very briefly in that one moment. Uh, and how it's supposedly a story-driven beat that they don't explain very well. Uh, but I did like that that weird "wait a minute, what's going on?" sensation. Well, like, like I loved that too. But it, but you're right. Like it's almost a little bit too subtle for the medium. Like it's like you know, like you're playing it and you're just like, 
Like, like so for me, um, the moment I realized this was like when I was racing down these these tunnels with a golf cart, and everything seemed to be walking in the in the same direction, right. and I was just like, I was like, oh god, these guys suck. Like the AI, terrible programming. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, like they totally gave up, and then like I jump out and you know like get in, and I'm like, oh shit, you know, like you no, know, it's like this whole like. I mean, in one way, like from a, a designer's perspective, it's brilliant. Like it's just like it's, it's brilliant. It's just like, hey, guess what, player? You're not smarter than me. <laughs> FYI, like right. you, I know you always think you are, but guess what? Like we're we're better than you. Like, um, but at the same time, there's like just enough small little glitches and <laughs> rising too that like it's like you're not sure that it isn't just abject yeah. incompetence up until the point that you like. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's such a part, too, of how uh, early on before you're re- really powerful, when you're fighting, like, the psychos, and I'm thinking specifically of Leon on the frickin' motorcycle, early on, the, the way you beat that is you wait for the stupid thing to glitch and get caught on the geometry somewhere, uh, and I, j- I just hate that that's such a part of... Of, dead, of the way you play Dead Rising uh, is, you, you know, you kind of cross your fingers for a glitch because otherwise you're going to have to replay it with a lot more firepower and healing potions. Uh, so. Well, I, I think that, like, I mean, uh, that's the thing, like, up until a certain point in the game. I mean, that was what, you know, like, up until a certain point in the game, like, I definitely just waited for those glitches and tried to exploit them, like jumping, jumping over barriers and stuff like that. Like, you know, because the nature of Dead Rising's environment is one where, like, even if the designers think that it's very clean and clear and, like, one that lends itself to, uh, you know, a very difficult boss fight, like, um, you know, what they're aiming for means that, the, like, somebody's going to come in afterwards and spray it full of benches and garbage cans. Right. Or, you know, like, <laughs> things like that. So, you know, that was kind of what I tried. And, and like, um, is his name Leon, the, the you know, the, the motorcycle guy? Is that it's Leon. Yep, Leon Bell. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that guy was a son of a bitch, but, like, I just jumped behind one of the barricades, and I had, like, seven shotguns, and I just, like, unloaded one after the other into him at close range. Um, shotguns uh, or any um, any ballistic weapon in Dead Rising 2 is completely worthless to use against bosses uh, or psychopaths. Like, there's almost no point, but... Um, well, you say that, but, I mean, I, I've, I've, my, my sort of MO for going through was before a boss fight to make sure to load up on firearms, and now there would be a lot of times where it looks like you're firing and the animation wouldn't let it register any damage, so for me it was always, okay, at what point can I really inflict damage with a firearm? Uh, and, and I know probably I've read a lot of people talking about mixing various concoctions that help you do melee, um, so I realize I haven't fully explored the combat system, but for me it was all about just pouring firepower onto the frickin' psychopaths, and it, it got pretty tedious at times. Well, did you pour, did you pour like, ballistic firearms into them, like, by yourself? Uh, sorry. Sometimes, well, I, I got to the That's point... Not, like, really retarded, like, did you just pour ballistic firearms? <laughs> like, um, no, um, did you, did you pour firearms into them yourself, or did you pour them via a survivor accompaniment. Both, but but usually it came down to me also making sure that I had plenty of firearms. Uh, now, there, there, you know, I say that, but there were times where, yeah, I had to do, just get in there with a defiler or, or something. 
Uh, but, but for me, I rarely used firearms against the zombies and tended to save them because you use up ammo when you use them. So I tended to save them for the, the psychopaths and the story bosses as, as well. Well, what I discovered personally mm-hmm. is that, like, basically using firearms against bosses was worthless. Like, that's not the way they want you to fight them. They want you to fight them with all of these, like, bullshit sweeps and head stomps and, uh, you know, melee attacks that you've been given the whole the whole game. So, um, you know, like, basically what I discovered is, is that, you know, if you're going to fight a psychopath, you give your survivors your... You know, like things like a six shooter and right. stuff that is like actually carries a pack, uh, like a, a pound, and then, you know, like you go in there with your usual weapons, which is actually I think a fairly big flaw in Dead Rising Two, which is that, you know, for all the ballyhoo about this like amazing crafting system, um, the first weapon you get is pretty much one of the best weapons you can get. Like um, the first crafted weapon you can get is one of the first. Uh, Really, you know, like, the nails plus bat, like, honest to God, like, there's really not a lot of reason outside of just sandboxing it to go through the game with anything else except for, say, a blade, which you can upgrade to, uh, upgrade through a magazine. Well, now you say that, John, but I'm sitting here. I'm, I've, I've been, uh, you know, when I take notes when I'm doing a podcast, I, I use a pad here. The pad of paper I'm using right now is something that I sat down with on my first playthrough of Dead Rising 2. And every time I came across a maintenance room, I would note the location of the maintenance room and what, like, doubled up items were there. So that as I was playing... You know, you know uh, so that I, because normally when you leave the safe house, you get the bat and the nails. That's right there. But as I was playing and, and I would need a weapon or would run out of a weapon, uh, I could just look on my pad here and see what maintenance room I'm closest to and what combo weapon I could run over and, and make real quick. Uh, so by doing that, I, I feel that sort of your, your choice of weapon is dictated by where you are in the geography, where you are in the game. Um, and I just have a pad of notes right here, which is about, you know, when you get to use the dynamite bow or when you get the little servo bot lawnmower combo. Uh, and, and to me, that was sort of a function of where you are more than, like, what's more powerful or what's most effective. Uh, well, I guess I guess the question I would ask to that is, like, I mean, I, I, I don't doubt that I play these games a little bit more straightforwardly than perhaps most of the people on Quarter 3. Like, I know I do. Like, um, but... The I, I guess the question I would ask is mm-hmm. just like, you know, like I mean, you're writing down all these com- combos and stuff like that, and and for me that I, I ask like, how much of that is video game reviewer versus uh, <laughs> you know, per, you know, like because there actually is a big difference between a video game reviewer and even well, a guy like me sure. who like thinks deeply about video games but like plays them extremely casually without you know, uh, necessarily planning to stake an opinion on them. Right. And, like, you know, like, and also, like, when you're talking about, like, writing down on a notepad, I'm, like, thinking about somebody, like, I'm thinking about me playing Kid Chameleon back in, like, 1988 or 89 or whatever, you know, like, just kind of like, okay, well, on this level I can get this and this and this. Like, (laughs) I'm not necessarily sure that, like, Dead Rising 2, I think, is a hardcore game, like, but, um, you know, uh, 
I don't necessarily think it's that hardcore. Where well, no, let me, let me, right. I, you, that's a very good point, and let me, let me explain exactly. It's not at all being a matter of a reviewer. It's a matter of being a strategy gamer. This is how I approach, ah. for instance, an RTS. Like, RTSs with different factions, I'll make notes for all the units, and then I'll try to, like, write down some of their stats. I do the same thing, John, with, like, CCGs, collectible card games. It's a matter of categorizing a strategy game. And, and part of the way I approach Dead Rising 2 is as that time management strategy game. You know, I'm over here in the Palisades Mall. I need a weapon. What's the most effective weapon I can get? And because things are put in pairs in all of the little maintenance rooms, uh, I, I want to know what pair is closest to me. Like, do I want to go over here for a crowd control weapon, or do I want to go over here for a firearm, or do I want to go over here for something that does a lot of damage to one particular zombie, or do I want to go over here to get something that's better for a boss fight? You know, where am I going to get the best healing potions? You know, where do I get my food? So, so it's not a reviewer thing so much as a strategy game nerd thing, I, I think. Uh, okay. Uh, but that's so. So you you sort of were saying I I I feel that in in all of the the combo weapon system you're right in that it it's not leveraged very well in the boss fights because there's all this awesome uh, alternate attack and fatality animation stuff that just goes right out the window once you try to use it on a psychopath or I think even a merc like it doesn't even work on mercs um, but all of that stuff I think is part of the leveling up system and just the general faffing about with zombies. Uh, and the, the faffing about is going to be more uh, effective in terms of g level grinding if you're using these different combo weapons. Um, well, so, I, I mean, I could be wrong. Like, I mean, I could be wrong in the in the, the pro. I, in, in fact, I probably am in the proper way to level up. It just seems to me that like, um, and I, I feel like this is a, this is like. You know, like basically, a lot of people go uh, talk about Dead Rising Two, and they complain about not being able to play it the way they want to play it, which is a sandbox game. And right. people say, "Well, you can play it the way you want to play it," but like, um, and and they're right, but at the same time, you can't really level up uh, without kind of following the designer's lead, and the designer's lead is very strongly focused not even on focusing, like, story missions or anything like that. It's, mm -hmm. it's rescuing survivors. Right. Like, rescuing survivors is absolutely the most important thing about getting powerful in Dead Rising 2. Uh, Dead Rising 2. And if you're not doing that, um, you know, you're you're basically, like, hobbling yourself. And, and, and psychopaths, too. You get a big PP chunk for, for killing psychopaths as well. It's sort of like It's sort of like an MMO where they want you to do the quests to level up rather than just grinding monsters in the field. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Well, you know, I, I, I think you're right, but it's not like, I feel like, I mean, like I haven't been taking notes. I haven't really been thinking about this in an active level while I've been playing it, because it's just been, you know, playing it after, you know, a few beers at the end of the night or whatever. Like, but at the same time, like, I feel like Dead Rising 2, like, like, I feel like, I have noticed these like gigantic um, psychopath like, like these gigantic PP bonuses mm -hmm. coming coming off of just bringing on, uh, bringing in survivors. Where, while I've all, well, I've also felt that like these psychopath bonuses have been just a little bit disappointing compared to how much work they are. Like, uh, yes, yes. 
you know, and it, it's almost to the point where I just feel like if I was going to recommend to somebody to game the system, I'd just be like, well, you know what, maybe you should just, like, skip the psychopaths, bring home any survivors that you don't have anybody, like, with a chainsaw or <laughs> a motorbike with, say, a chainsaw on it, like, you know, <laughs> like, roaming around, like, just... Just, just do the, the easy dudes. And, like, that is one awesome thing about Dead Rising 2 is that, like, um, if you accidentally stumble into a uh, psychopath battle, you know what? Like, these guys have better shit to do than just, like, wait around to kill you. Like, if you just walk out of the chapel or whatever, like, they're they're not going <laughs> to, you know, like, they're not, they're not going to run around after you. You can just kind of, like, that is a huge, huge advantage to Dead Rising, too, is just you can just, like, walk out of a room if you find that, like, a boss is unfair or something right. like that. Like, and, and to its credit, like, that is something that most games do not do. Right. Like, and certainly Dead Rising 1 didn't do it. Like the boss battles, the, the psychopath battles, you were locked in until you finished, and, you know, this was a brick wall you had to get past, uh, you had to deal with. So so two things, though, John, about the balancing thing that you, that you mentioned there. Uh, even though the, the reward for psychopaths, as far as PP, might not be proportional, one of the resources you get from psychopaths, actually two resources in a way you get. The first resource is I'm pretty sure all of them drop some sort of weapon. I think actually it might be like, I think Slappy just gives you a combo card. But, but a lot of the psychopaths drop a respawning weapon, whether it's uh, the, the twins' katanas or the, the sheriff who's lynching everyone, his six-shooter, or uh, the, the, the pink chainsaw that Randy has. So the psychopaths give you a weapon or some kind of a drop that respawns. They also free up... Um, in some cases, geography. Like, if you don't want to fight Leon, that's fine, but that portion of the Silver Strip is going to be really difficult for you to get past. Well, I say really difficult, more difficult than normal for you to get past until you have cleared him out. Uh, and it's the same with the South Plaza, with the guy, I forget the, the name of the sheriff who's lynching everyone, but he squats in that area in the South Plaza once you've spawned him, which you're going to do if you go there. Uh, so he basically gets in the way of how you traverse the level until you beat him. So two things you get from psychopath battles, in addition to PP, are uh, freeing up the geography and some kind of weapon. Uh, an another real quick note about balancing, if you just faff about and kill zombies, uh, there are periodic uh, PP dumps that you get, like huge chunks of PP as you hit certain thresholds of killed zombies. So I, I think that they realize that the, the experience you're getting just for the kills isn't quite enough. Uh, so they give you more as you hit, you know, 50, 100, 200, 500. Uh, they give you little bonuses there. But I don't pretend to know in just the two and a half times I've played, like how the whole balance thing plays out. Well, I see people posting about how to min-max and in a way, I don't want to know that stuff. Like, I don't want to break the system open that well, way. Well, I mean, actually, that's one of the supreme – I mean, like, I, there's a lot of stuff that you said there that, I like, I would love to talk about, but this is not the venue. One of the things I would say, though, is, like, just about comparing Dead Rising 2 to Dead Rising 1, which is just that, like um, – Dead Rising 2, I think, has made um, – has really, like, struck a really brilliant balance that uh, – I mean, what is their name? Blue Castle, right? Yep. Blue Castle, yep. Yeah, like, I mean, Blue Castle, 
I really feel like they should get, get a stand-up applause on this one. Like, because, like, they took a really fucking weird Japanese property <laughs> that was trying to appeal to America but didn't manage to do either. Like, they took this, and they really nailed it. Like, and um, the thing about, like, Dead Rising, um, Dead Rising, like, Two's balance that uh, I'd like to point out is like, so Dead Rising One was a min maxer's paradise. Like ultimately, at the end of the day, it you know like if you wanted to get far in Dead Rising, you basically killed whatever that fucking clown was on the upside upside right. roller coaster, right. and you took his chainsaws and you got the exact magazine that tripled the life of those chainsaws. And every time you ran through that section, you grabbed the chainsaws again, yeah. and nothing was a problem. Like that was that was the only play, way to play Dead Rising One. Okay, and so people like me. Honestly, that was the way you, like, when I went into Dead Rising 2, that was the way I wanted to play Dead Rising 1. But, like, I'm sorry, that was the way I wanted to play Dead Rising 2. Like, mm-hmm. when I, and, like, I love Dead Rising 1, and I'm not necessarily a min-maxer, but, like, I, I kind of went into Dead Rising 2, like, wanting to find that, like, uber combo that was just going to do exactly that for me. And, like, what I love about what, you know, Blue Castle did with Dead Rising 2. It's just like, you know, they kept that, you know, uber combo from me, but at the same time, <laughs> they, like, gave me, like, three or four, like, combos that were just almost as good. Right. And, like, and and allowed me to progress further on my, you know, first or second playthrough than I ever had on Dead Rising 1. And, like, I don't really feel like that accomplishment... I feel like that accomplishment is so subtle and so granular. Like, I don't think it's obvious. Like, I think that, like, a lot of people who play Dead Rising 2 will not realize how much fucking tweaking, you know, tweaking it took between, like, you know, Gears of War style, like, you know, okay, I'm going to reset this level, and, like, the other, you know, like, the other utter insane... Um, loyalty it took to you know the central gameplay elements of right. Dead Rising One. Yep, yep. Uh, I have to, Dad I have to go sign for another package. I'm sorry to do this. Uh, would you recite poetry while I'm gone? <laughs> All right, you're right, oh, God, what, it's been a long time since I've recited poetry. Um, I can't do it, guys. I'm sorry. Um, there was once a time when I could recite poetry, but it was when I was a lot more pretentious than I am now, which, as you guys would well understand, was pretty much never. Were you actually reciting poetry? <laughs> no, it wasn't. wasn't. I'm really sorry about that. I uh, I have shoot club tonight, which is my I have a little weekly gathering oh, and party, uh, and we. Um, we have a dead computer that I've been waiting on a video card for, and unfortunately, the video card replacement I had to sign for. Normally, they'll just leave me a package, so I apologize for that. The thing is, is like, if you'd gotten me, like, two or three years ago, like, in my alcoholism, like, I could have done that. Like, because I'd, I'd, I'd made this whole... 
I told me this whole promise to myself that I was going to like memorize a poem every day, like, and I I had done it for like six or seven months, like like as soon as you were just like action, I was just like, oh. <laughs> well, I look forward many, to many many years ago in a kingdom by a sea. Yeah. <laughs> well, I can't wait when I go back to listen to the podcast. Uh, to hear what you actually did with the uh, with the time. It's a lot of it's a lot of stumbling and coughing and <laughs> you know like vaguely masturbatory slacking sounds like I don't know. Oh great! Wow. Uh, well, John, you know I good lord I could sit and talk Dead Rising and Zombies with you all day, but we have now I believe set a record for the longest quarter to three games podcast, uh, which is quite an accomplishment. Uh, well, I, yeah, fuck yeah, like beat that Dave Long. <laughs> Dave Long, don't get him started. Dave Long will talk like between uh, Nintendo and heavy metal. I could do a, a Showa-length podcast with Dave Long, I'm sure. And I hope you do. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let me, uh, uh, John Brownlee, ask you a random question that has nothing to do with anything that we've talked about. Uh, this will also be a thread in everything else, um, but I'm just going to throw this at you. You ready for this? Uh, well, I don't know before you say it, but go for it. That's right. You're not ready for this. That's the point. So here you go. Uh, what's the coolest object you've ever lost? Oh, shit. I thought, I thought this was going to be like, like, do you regret that abortion you once forced your girlfriend to have or something? Like, that was like a real question. This is like real. But this is, yeah. All right. Well, let me think. Okay. What is the, well, actually, I can tell you this answer very easily. Um, uh, let's see. Early last year, I bought myself a absolutely top of the line MacBook Pro. Um, it cost me <laughs> around twenty five hundred dollars. I was dating at the time a uh, a vivacious thing who lived. Uh, not, not sorry. She didn't live. She, I mean, she lived in the neighborhood, but she worked at the bar downstairs from me, mm-hmm. uh, at which I was an alcoholic regular. Um, and she, like, basically, I went down one night because I tended to work on this. Like, they had Wi-Fi, and I tended to work on this MacBook Pro, which was like, you know, twenty five, twenty seven hundred dollars. And I went down there one night. And, you know, she was she was working behind the counter. She came around the counter. We kind of, ha- you know, had a night out. And then the next morning, like 7 a.m., I woke up with a start. And I was just like, where's my MacBook? And she's like, I don't know, whatever. Like, and I was just like, I think it's got to be downstairs where you work. And so I rushed downstairs, and there was no MacBook at all. <laughs> And um, and so I basically like rushed around the neighbor the neighborhood in this like complete like delirium tremendous fever for the next like twelve hours like break my MacBook like just bursting into bakeries and you know like local veterinarians like people who didn't even know me and just like kind of trembling all over them like where is this like you know thing and like no one knew and i, I um, love you so i love the fact that you seem to be expecting to to run into someone who was carrying a macbook pro with that sort of vaguely expectant look on their face like is this yours is this yours who to whom does this belong <laughs> well you know you you say that and yet you don't quite understand the german temperament which is like like one of the weird things about germany is just like like, you know, like, 
Okay, so in America, like if you leave your your car unlocked and your keys in the ignition, you know, if you get your car stolen, like people are like, ah, oh, that's really sad. But everybody, even your most clo- your closest friends and your grandparents, like secretly think you deserve it. <laughs> like, yeah. and well, that you know, you say that, John, but I think that you deserve losing that MacBook Pro in the bar. So yes, you're right. <laughs> what over pussy? Like, I mean, how can you think that? Like, I mean, Look, you know, like. As as my father was fond of telling me, no matter how you get it, you pay for it. Oh dear, oh dear! No wonder we, you went to divinity school. <laughs> uh, so that's really what happened. You left a twenty-five to twenty-seven hundred dollar MacBook Pro in a bar. You just left it there. To be fair, I was getting laid. Like, I mean, you know, like I I, I don't think that that can be like. You know, over, overemphasized. <laughs> okay. There, you know. All right. Uh, I'm sure you could have gotten laid for much cheaper, but okay, if that's. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, can you imagine how late I would have gotten for 2,500 years? That's like, okay. I mean, that's that's astonishing. Like, there, there are certain governors here in the United States that uh, can't even. <laughs> uh, I probably still have like a leak from the back of my head from this day. Like, oh, it's, it's, it's amazing. Um, anyway, um, so you never so, found it, right? It's it's gone. That's the no, it's it's gone. It's gone. Like, uh-huh. I, I know. The thing is, it was stolen. It was stolen from one of the people who was there, and I know that guy. But uh, it, it, you know, like ultimately, like you know, first of all, German. You know, like Germany. Like you do not expect people to actually steal things, and you know, and you definitely don't expect people you you've known for over a year to steal things. So like, I know this guy, but I can't prove it. And oh, that sucks. That sucks. Like the thing, like it's like the, when the bully, when you're a kid, and the bully down the street steals your bike, but you can't accuse him because you have no way of proving it. But but you know he stole it, and he knows that you know, and he's gloating about it. He knows you can't bust him. That sucks. You know, it, it really sucked, and, like, it really sucked also because it was just, like, this is a guy, like, also what um, I didn't quite pin it down for for, like, another few months. And uh, all during this time, he's like, oh, yeah, I'm really sorry about that. <laughs> um, me- meanwhile, like, I had gone into, like, a period where I did not have any clients uh, or, sorry, I had I had a period where like I had lost one major client and was picking up another one, and my laptop had been stolen at exactly the point where I needed to do work. <laughs> so it's just like oh ouch. Yeah, so it was like 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 this guy was just like oh I'm really sorry to hear about your laptop man. And you're just like, <laughs> no, you're you're just like fuck, you know like at the time you're just like oh that really means a lot to me, but you know like in retrospect you're like. You fucking son of a bitch. What the hell? <laughs> so, by the way, though, I don't know that this technically qualifies as being stolen. You lost it. If you just if you leave a, a laptop in a bar and somebody picks it up and goes home with it, they, they haven't stolen it. They found it. You well, lost I, it. I, I, Fair and square. Is, I, mean, I mean, this may well be one that is, you know, like, argued over for the next thousand years. I mean, all I can say <laughs> is that, like, um, I am... You know, friends with many, you know, moralists and philosophy students, and all I can say is, is that like they feel that like if you know some, you know, you know a bartender and he work, you know, there every night, and like he lives downstairs from you, and that like if one night you forget, you know, your bag because you're going out with his girlfriend, you know, like <laughs> not not his not his actual girlfriend, like. 
actually, you know, I think I, I think I think I've incriminated myself enough. You know. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, that's good. I don't have anything that's uh, nearly that that level of interesting. Uh, I my answer to this question would be. Um, I was once given a fountain pen. I've never been a fan of fountain pens. I like pencils. I like pencil sharpeners. I like pencils. I like putting a pencil behind my ear and looking like a grocery store clerk in the 19th century. I dig that whole thing. But once someone gave me a fountain pen, and she really turned me on to the charm of these things, you know, with the different kind of nibs you can get and the inkwell. And, you know, this was a fountain pen. We had to dip it in there and do the little mechanism to suck the ink up into the pen. And I loved this thing. And it was just a clean, sleek, non-ornate black fountain pen by a company called, I think, Lemmy. Uh, which actually, I'm thinking now of the guy from Motorhead. That can't be right. No, that is right. They're called Lemmings. Um, no, I. Yeah, and, that's right. Okay, so I, uh, I, this fountain pen was given to me as a gift. I loved it, and I was fortunate enough many years ago to be on a, a TV show called West Wing on a couple of times, and I played a reporter who would just like raise his hand and ask a stupid question. I would get one line, and, and that would be it. So I got this great fountain pen, and I told my friend, "I'm going to get your fountain pen on national TV." Uh, and when it came around to do my scene and I had to raise my hand to ask a question, I made a point to have this fountain pen in my hand. Uh, and I was just so glad I got to do that. So the thing is, though, when you, when you shoot a TV show like that, like they give you all your clothes, they give you a watch that you wear, all that stuff is like props and costumes. Uh, I think literally, like it, the pair of underwear I was wearing is the only thing that actually belonged to me. They actually give you your own, their, you wear their socks and their shoes. Um, so I, I did the scene, you know, it takes all day. There's so much like sitting around waiting when you shoot TV. I got the pen up there. I made a point to have it in my hand every time. Uh, I made a point even to where I was holding it up when I began to deliver my line so they couldn't cut around it. And then at the end of the day, I went home, uh, and a couple of days later, I went to look for my fountain pen and realized that I had left it in my frickin' what oh, we no. call the costume, which is just a suit that I was wearing. No, so I, I remember, awful. it's terrible. I remember calling the costume department, and they were really sympathetic, and they looked for it, but it, it never showed up. So there, there's me trying to get my, my fountain pen on TV, and I ended up paying for it by uh, <laughs> losing the stupid fountain pen. Tom, Tom I'm, I know, we, I, like, I, first of all, I want to tell you, how awful that sounds to me. Like, uh, it, it really does sound like... I, I didn't even terrible. get laid, John. I didn't even get sex out of that deal, so... See, see I did. Granted, <laughs> drunk, clumsy sex, but, like, still, like, I mean, that was nice. Like, you know, like, I mean, or at least better than the option. But, like, what? I, no, I really do feel bad about that because, like, at least this thing did not have sentimental value to me. It had, like, logis- logistical value, but, like, it, it doesn't matter. But, like, one of the things I was really curious about, though, like, was, like, and I have to say I've been morbidly fa- – uh, I've been morbidly fascinated about this, like, my whole time on Twitter to Three. Mm-hmm. Um, I would like you to close this podcast with – telling everybody about the time and the sensations you felt kissing the keyboard. <laughs> now, why do you ask that? Because it's, it's like she regarded as like a hot redhead or something. Is that for, or is it just that she was like on TV or, uh, well, not, not amongst my fetishist club. <laughs> like, uh, here's what I remember about kissing Vicky Lois. 
Uh, Vicki Lewis, I remember at the time, I, did, I didn't, I don't watch a lot of TV, and I don't think I've ever watched any of the shows that I've been on. ER, actually, I, I watched ER a lot, and I remember it being weird when I was actually on ER because I used to love that show. Um, but when I was on news radio, I didn't really have a sense for who was who and wh- what. The, the characters were to each other or, or what celebrities they were. Like right now, actually Phil Hartman, I, I definitely knew who he was. So so that was the big deal, was meeting Phil Hartman. But then there was this redhead, and all I knew about her was that she was Nick Nolte's girlfriend at the time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So I remember thinking, you know, wow, my mouth has been where Nick Nolte's mouth has been at this point. <laughs> but the other thing, John, she had on... And I've done, like, some kissing scenes and stuff, and there's there's nothing the least bit erotic or sensual about kissing during a performance. Like, it, it is so often so perfunctory. So the thing I remember about kissing Vicki Lewis, she had on so much chapstick that it, it, it was like licking a candle. Uh, I, I distinctly remember that. So those two things, Nick Nolte's mouth had been there, and there was a lot of chapstick involved. So, <laughs> well, the thing is, like, actually, that's what I remember about this. Like, I don't remember where you said this. Like, I mean, obviously, it was on quarter to three because you and I have actually never had a conversation before now. But like, I remember you telling this thing about like how awful her lips were, yeah. <laughs> like, and like how you know, like, completely charming. You thought. Uh, What's her name? Maureen Tierney? Oh, that's right. Oh, yeah, yeah, Maureen Maureen Tierney. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, I I remember you talking exactly about how, like, charming and lovely she was. And, like, then, like, having to kiss, like, just, like, (laughs) withered, like, mumras, like, like, mumra of an actor. Like, you know, this horrible, like, greasy set of lips that was, like, belonging to her. And I was just like... I don't know. I just, I, I just, I still wanted you to tell this story. On <laughs> well, I forgot. Now you've made me all uh, wistful. I, I forgot about. I think it's Maureen or Mora. It's Mora. It's Mora Tierney. She's yeah. one of those people. I just remember seeing her in person and thinking, well, God, what, a, what an incredibly lovely, beautiful woman. Uh, and you can't even. I, I mean, I guess you can tell from TV. But uh, God, and and not even in a sort of a lecherous, oh, she's so hot way. I mean, there was there was a little of that, but good lord, she was just a, a just a really beautiful girl. Uh, so well, strong, you know. Yeah, and, and, and that's the thing. Like, how awful is that? Like, I mean, you know, like I, I've all, you know, like you, you see her on the other end of a television or whatever, and you know, she seems. Uh, I mean, she, she seems plain to you in a sort of sexy way, and like, like obviously, she's like absolutely, like, the most beautiful woman you've ever seen in your life and, like, the most charming and winning person you've ever seen. Like, 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 um, God, fuck television. Well, and, and, that, and, and conversely, John, like, I've, I've seen a lot of people who, like, you think are, like, really hot on TV, but you meet them in person and you realize, you know, that's just, it's makeup and lighting. Uh, you, you know, so much of what, what you see on TV is just, or movies, it can be really false. So that was the thing with Maura Tierney is, uh, wow, no, she's really, really lovely. Yeah. So. Well, well John, I, that. I'm sorry, go ahead. <laughs> Actually, you don't want me to repeat that. I said that you should attack that. Oh. <laughs> Uh, I'm sure that, uh, yeah, way out of my league. Uh, no, so. Well, uh, I, I, good Lord, I, I'm glad we set a record. Uh, I could sit here and talk Dead Rising 2 with you all day, but I have to go install a video card, which is going to be so much fun. Uh, I love fixing computers, and I'm being completely facetious. Good Lord, I hate, I, I so just want to say 
FPCs. I'm consoles only from now on. Uh, well, I, I've been seeing you, like, gradually leaning in that direction over the last few years. So, like, you know, like, um, you know, gradually casting scorn upon people who, like, proclaim themselves PC-only <laughs> only gamers. So, like, I'm okay with this. Like, if this is going to be part of your, like, long-term education into, like, Win people off of platforms as opposed to games. Like, see, now you I can support you leaving early. You, you you say that, John, but I don't think it's me. I think it's the industry. I'm just going where the industry is going, and everybody else is a weird, freaky holdout, like some Japanese soldier in the Philippines who doesn't know the war is over. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just the normal. <laughs> one. So, well, I think that the, I think that that one should be like engraved on. Well, I'm, I'm not even gonna say like. You know, any specific console goer's, like, forehead. I just think it should be engraved on everybody's forehead. <laughs> like, you are, you know, if you don't think that, if you think this is the only front, you are dead. Like, right. <laughs> like, 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 you are totally out of your mind. And, you know, I, I'm okay with that. Like, I think you're fighting the good fight. You know, good. like. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad to have you fighting it with me. Uh so, uh, well, there will be a post for folks listening. Uh, what's the coolest object you've ever lost? Uh, when you post there, uh, you don't have to say whether or not you got laid when you lost it in the context of losing it. Uh, your object does not have to have ever appeared on national TV. But in order to go into the drawing for a free game, what I want you to do when you post about the coolest object you've ever lost is post where you lost it. Now, a lot of times that's one of those things when you say, hey, I lost this, and somebody says, where did you lose it? And, of course, the obvious reply is, well, if I knew that, I wouldn't have lost it. So do with that what you will. But in your answer, you must somehow uh, address the, the, the issue of where you lost it. If you do that, you will go into the drawing with John Brownlee for a free video game. Uh, John, what video what, game I will not be able to play, incidentally, because I am in Europe, so go nuts. What, you can't play video games in Europe? They don't allow that over there? Well, I can't play uh, <laughs> games that are not U.S., like whatever, like U.S.-owned. Uh, John, considering how long it tends to take me to get around to these, uh, actually like going through the threads and then mailing out the actual games, at this point I'm uh, like two months behind, uh, you will no, be living in... Just message me if you want the game. I'll... <laughs> <laughs> well, no, you'll be living in New York probably by the time you get your game. And I think in New York they'll let you play video games on any system that you want. So there yeah. you go. Oh, fuck yeah. All right. <laughs> I, I, I'm really sorry to be a Budinsky there. Sorry, guys. <laughs> so there you go. I, I hope you win. Uh, actually, here's another thing, too, John. Uh, and it's strictly random. I just I go to a random number generator. It's the equivalent of rolling a die. Nobody who's ever been the, the guy on the podcast has ever won the game. Uh, and I, I feel bad about that. Uh, oh, shit. Well, I mean, now that you've mentioned it, like... It's guaranteed that I'm somehow going to manage to bribe you to win the game. Like that's that's amazing. Well, maybe if you can arrange to leave a twenty-seven hundred dollar like MacBook Pro at, at my house, we we could see about that. Well, may, maybe somehow you could arrange to leave a twenty-seven hundred dollar MacBook Pro in your house and therefore not be murdered by me. And uh, like, you know, maybe maybe I would never deign to bother with getting a MacBook Pro. Did you ever think of that? <laughs> Uh, no, no. I, I, you're a fancy pants. You're a fancy pants actor. I'm thinking it's it's going to come one way or the other. I have not. The last time I owned an Apple product was the Apple II GS. But, oh, you know what? What am I saying? Good lord! I have an iPhone. 
Oh, good jeez. I'm totally... Oh. I, wow, I can't believe that. I was going to sit here and try to be all superior and pretend I haven't had an Apple product. Uh, and I've I've been on board with iPods and iPhones forever now. Oh, man. That, that was a massive, like, superiority complex fail right there. Well, well I, yeah. Well, it, FYI, yes, it was. <laughs> but, like, uh, no, no, like, I mean, that, that, that's cool. Like, that doesn't really count. But, like, you know, like, I, I, what I'm really curious about is, like, why not? Because uh, I have enough trouble keeping up with the whole PC thing uh, that the last thing I want to try to do is, is integrate a, a more expensive laptop into my little LAN here at, at home. Uh, well, well, I mean, I, I don't know if this is a venue for the podcast, which is still ongoing, FYI. But uh, like, what is it about the um, uh, like, like, what is it that you don't want to incorporate? Like, is it the fact? That, oh well, no, it's it's strictly it's a very simple matter, John. Of I just I I don't really I can't be bothered to learn like how to deal with a new OS. I mean, as idiot proof as it may be, I just you know I'm fine with Windows based products. Um, and there's nothing really that a Mac does. Like, I don't do a lot of graphics stuff. Uh, unless I'm playing games, I just use a computer for word processing. So, Well, I mean, like, and, and I think that those are all excellent reasons not to switch over to a Mac. Like, I actually really do, even as somebody who loves Macs. But, like, I guess what I'm, I, uh, my question would, would ultimately be is, like, do you actually use a PC anymore, really? Oh, yeah, every day. Good Lord. That's, I, I do what you do. You know, I, as a blogger, I'm sitting in front of a PC all the time. You know, I, I wonder, too, John, if that's one of the reasons I don't – I mean, I still play plenty of PC games, but when I think of, like, playing games for recreation, I, I want to sit down at the couch because I'm in front of my PC all day doing work that mm. I sort of am like, you know, I could play StarCraft two, or I could sit down and just faff about with Dead Rising two. Uh, well – yeah, I, I, I mean, I think you've at least for me, you've like put your your thumb on it. Like, I I can't play. I have a really hard time playing like PC games anymore. Yeah, like, yeah. even though like on my Mac, like I am a Mac gamer, but like you know, like I have a top of line iMac. Like I can run. Like I've got a boot camp and shit like that. Like it's fine. Like, but I can't I can't do it anymore because just like. At the end of the day, I don't want to sit in front of my desk. Yeah, yeah. In front of my couch, and I want to have fun, and I want to be, like, freaking scotch or whatever, I'm, you know, like, in this very casual environment. <laughs> and it's just, like, for me, it's not no longer about the technology at all. It's 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 all about the, uh, I don't know. It's all about, like, the the factor of me being supine and stumptation. Yeah, the whole couch thing. You know, the funny thing is, John, there was a time I would have been, like, you know, to play a shooter, you need a mouse and keyboard. Bioshock 2, I want to play that on a PC. But I'm so not that way anymore. I mean, even though if I – I don't know how much into shooters you are, but even though I feel that mouse and keyboard are far better control schemes, I'm like, screw it. I don't care about the control scheme. You know, this is, this is made to play on a console as well. So I'm just going to opt for that, even if the controls are inferior. Well, well you know, I, I think you're right. Like, I mean, uh, from my perspective, like, as a gamer, like, I – I, I, I came from a family growing up who would not allow me to have a console, so um, I think a lot of people will understand this, where, like, in the NES and Super NES and, like, Genesis era, like, my parents wouldn't allow me to have that because it would rot my brain and addict me to video <laughs> games. And, and, 
And so instead, like, as an adult, like, I became way more obsessed with video games than I actually probably should have been. Like, um, you know, like, it, it was one of these things where it's, like, instead of being, like, a youthful habit or youthful, like, pursuit that I kind of abandoned along with, like, like, you know, G.I. Joe battle sets or whatever, <laughs> like, it, it ended up becoming something that was, like, perversely attracted to along with many other taboos, you know, and, um, like, I don't know, like, it was just this weird thing. So it's just like, you know, with, um, you know, most, but, but most of my life, like, because PCs were something that were around me, like, they were things that, like, plausibly had another excuse for doing work. Right, right. You know, like, like you know, I could say, I'm, oh, I'm just doing a spreadsheet, Mom, for, you know, whatever <laughs> class. You know, like, you know, like, things like that, as opposed to, like, playing Doom on the 386 with not the sound blaster, but, like, the actual PC sound that was just, like, bloop, 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 which I thought was, like, the most amazing thing I'd ever heard. You know, like, like stuff like that. Um... But, uh, you know, like, as an, uh, as an adult, like, it's, it's just a really strange thing. Like, I feel like a lot of people have this very kind of, like, maniacal, um, you know, like, uh, fixation upon the form factor in which they game, you know, which, uh, you know, completely ignoring, like, the effects. It's just that, like, you're experiencing this, like, amazing medium that has this interactive ability, you know, interactive quality that no other medium out there actually has, you know, and you're hung up on, like, whether or not it's, like, an NVIDIA or an ATI graphics card or, like, whether it's, on like, Windows 7 or Xbox 360, and, like, in actuality, like, who the fuck cares? Like, it's, it's the same same thing as, like, giving a shit about, like, what paper stock, you know, that masterpiece <laughs> you just read is, or, or, oh, but, and not even masterpiece, like, what masterpiece that, like, piece of shit pulp, you know, like, right, right. book about a guy, like, shitting into his own mother's mouth was about, like, you know, like, it, it doesn't matter, it's something, you know, it's like, you know, like, you're, you're, you know, like, these wars are all about, like, paper stock at the end of the day. Right, yep, absolutely. Uh, yeah, so let's hear it for platform agnosticism. Yay. Yay. Uh, <laughs> all right, well, John, it has been great talking to you. Uh, I've really appreciated this. I've, I've, uh, I've so looked forward to actually getting to, like, virtually meet you uh, and hurry up and move back to the States because then I think you're that much closer to actually meeting in person one day. I don't know. It's possible well, that you would come to L.A. or anything. I hope you'll be sleeping on my couch soon enough in New York. So, you know, I've never been to New York, so I uh, I, I would love to go. And uh, yeah, so hurry up and move there so that when I go, I have a place to stay. Well, we're gonna we're gonna do that. So, come February, send send me a ping. FYI, also for the rest of the re uh, listeners, I'm really sorry that I took up so much time and. God bless. I love y'all. <laughs> That's very kind of you. Uh, John Brownlee, thank you for joining me. Everyone, uh, post in what's the coolest object you've ever lost and everything else. Make sure to point out where you lost it. Uh, and, John, we will be seeing you around on the forum. All right. Thank you very much. No, 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 no.